0: Well this is Alex Grand. Today's episode is brought to you by my new comic, Journey into Mexico with Latin American artist Sebastian Guido Bono, following the adventures of young THAX Tabares, who wields the power of El Fuego. El Fuego. During a very politically hot time in 1830s Mexico, available in both English and Spanish on Barnes and Noble, Amazon, Kindle, Comixology and other retail online booksellers such as indieplanet.com. Cheers and let's get started. Welcome to the Comic Book Historians Podcast. This is Alex Grand. Last episode, we had the pleasure of having Professor Michael Dooley on the show. And one of the examples of his teaching was having Bill Sienkiewicz and Howard Chaikin at his classroom discussing visual arts. And this episode is a companion piece to that episode. So without further ado, welcome to Michael Dooley's classroom with special guest teachers, Bill Sienkiewicz and Howard Chaikin.
1: This is three of my four marriages. <laughs> <laughs> Nicely So, realistically,
2: are you doing comics anymore? Or are you? Yeah, okay. Yeah, actually, I am I'm doing a series with Kelly Sue DeConnick called Parisian White. It's a creator-owned series. You know, it's interesting that we're talking about this stuff with theater and painted stuff and comics and the whole vernacular. And one of the things that, that I'm finding out is that, and I don't know if you've gone through this as well, I'm having a hell of a time deciding on how I want to approach it or how it wants to dictate itself to me because it's like I I want to do something that's painted, but yet I think that cartooning is still, like everybody talks about how all art aspires to music. I think all art aspires to cartooning, to be honest. I mean, it sounds like a, a kind of a silly thing, but the idea of saying that the ultimate truth through the lie, that to me is the essence of cartooning, is to find the absolute truth of something through the simplicity of it Define cartooning for me by your terms and
1: standards. But before you do, let me call my wife. Okay. <laughs> I called her, I call her before I got started, and I fucked up, and I told her, I wouldn't, if I think I, I take the shift. So,
2: well, I'm just going to continue, you know, and uh, if anybody falls off, I'll just, I'll just hit, you know, falls asleep, I'll just hit. Oh, what I'm aware of is that everything I'm going through right now in terms of trying to figure out how to approach it, I keep thinking that I used to understand what I was feeling. It's like all of those answers were completely just, right there to be clean, without any kind of effort whatsoever. And I realized that everything I've worked on has been difficult, and a slog, and fighting through. I find that shocking,
1: I really do, because I've watched you work, and one of the reasons that I'm very envious of your work, I'm envious of a lot of things, but most people's work does not make me jealous, Bill's work makes me jealous. And I've watched him work, and I've watched your facility Flow. Maybe you're berserk inside, but it doesn't show <laughs> in any way. I'm serious. Remember that thing that Fred Carabaugh wrote about Earl person and the illusion of spontaneity? Okay. okay yes. I mean, I have the illusion of spontaneity. My sloppiness and roughness comes out of constantly polishing. And I've watched you explode. You know, I've been there. I mean, I watch you work. Okay. And I find it hard to believe. That
2: you struggle as much as you say you did. It's a constant struggle. It's I literally feel like I am I'm making mistake, correcting, making a mistake, correcting. It's a difference between working in acrylic and working in watercolor. Uh, okay, okay. Do you use acrylic
1: as a watercolor or do you literally use watercolor?
2: I use watercolor. I yeah. right, so, I judge I jump, jump <laughs> into <I jump laughs> in <at> every <laughs> medium <laughs> I possibly can, partly because to me, acrylic is fixing and making mistakes and fixing. Watercolour is chess, it's thinking ahead.
1: So why bother playing with a medium that creates challenges that could be solved by using another medium to play its part?
3: Masochism? (laughs) 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 Ladies
2: (laughs) and gentlemen, my work is done. (laughs) It's it's like wanting to know how to use a medium. You know, it's interesting that we've talked about the love of theatre. I was actually involved with a woman for about 15 years who was one of the co-creators of a show called Godspell. It actually helped me become much more aware of theater. And we're talking here tonight about process. And that's at least what it feels like that we're sort of getting into right now. And as if anybody else out here who's an artist or a writer, it's like you may have people that you find that were influences to you or for you. Other people who sort of paved the way and other people who sort of became influences in the sense of I'm going to try to do it in this way and not that way. It's like, by the choices we make of our influences, it's almost like it's already innately within us. By virtue of our choices, of what we're we're drawn to, it's almost like sort of the old paradigm of why is it that a masochist will find a sadist in a city of a million people? What we choose as influences are almost things that are innately, already inherently part of who we are. It's like, I can look at a certain style of work, and I'm not going to do these characters assassination yet, and it will actually not register, or it will register in the sense of, I'll I'll look at people's work that is technically fucking brilliant, and yet antiseptic to me, and it holds no interest to me whatsoever. Whereas I will see something that feels right, is technically artistically, academically wrong, but it feels honest and true, and I will be like that. That's what I want. Is Dave Johnson here? Okay, Dave's not here. Yeah, 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 right, here. yeah, right. yeah. The reason I mentioned this for specifically
1: because uh, Dave turned me on to the Dan ocean stuff. Mm-hmm. Okay, right. I only knew Dan as what he was. Okay, and I thought, oh, "Why?" I mean, I looked as a bit the shit. It was fantastic, and I said before I had a chance to stop myself, as we occasionally blur. I won't name the name of that I use. I said, "He's that guy only interested."
4: <laughs>
1: <laughs> right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, I agree.
5: I you know what I'm saying? Uh-huh. Maybe I'll tell some of you later. <laughs> <laughs> and that's exactly
1: right. I collect illustration, as you know. And my collection reflects both my own specific interests and tastes, but also stuff that has nothing to do with what I do. And Hearst is a perfect example of that. Back is an entirely other idea. But I like to look at stuff that has nothing to do with what I do or think. Because it makes me think about stuff that I should be thinking about beyond what I care about. I assume that that's what you're talking about as well.
2: To a degree, it's, when you mention Beckhoff, I mean, talk about original, I mean. <laughs> well, I, I have those, but I also have more Beckhoff painting. Yeah, Her, Harry Her- Beckhoff, for those of you, again, looking it up, mm-hmm. he was, I suppose he could be considered like a microbiologist, I mean, the way he drew. An I eccentric mean, guy yeah. who
1: worked from the late 20s to the early 70s mm-hmm. without any change in style. His work was uh, flat color and line, done with a very delicate hand. He was a male man who decided to try his hand at illustration in the late 20s. And the only thing that changed was the hair size. The drawing was consistent and constant. And what made him so eccentric was his original pencil drawings were the size of playing cards. This big, that I'm not being in any way facetious. And the drawing in these things is so exquisite as to be beyond belief. It frequently is better than that original pencil drawing that is in the finish. He's an astonishing draftsman. He was also a mascot and a beloved figure of his fellow illustrators. Street. very close friends. We changed him to be flag and uh, in Cornwall. He modeled for a number of, of Cornwall's pieces. And at a roast, flagged a caricature of him using a
6: microscope, a usable opticon, to look at one of his drawings. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and he's an astonishing talent. I have a back off of a draft where a group of people sitting listening to a speech over the toilet in
1: my middle floor bathroom. So I watch it every time I urinate. I go where the walls are, you know? <laughs> and every time I look at this piece, I find something new. It's a, there's just an attitude. It's that piece of all people listening. Mm-hmm. There's a guy standing yeah. on the stairs on a whole And it's just filled with acting. And Bill and I, I think the one thing we share beyond any other interest is acting. Because we work in a business that has been trammeled over the past say 25 to 30 years by a diminishing sense of sale coupled with a circling of the wagons to do the same thing that got the sale to diminish in the first place in a lot of ways. And both of us are guys who do characters who act. Going yeah, back to the theater set. And the guys whose work I like in comic books are the guys who do characters that are engaging with me. Some years back, I was on a panel with two guys, very nice guys. You know, they both those those U shapes, their beards was so popular a couple years back. They were very young, they had hats to run backwards and shit. And one was running the pork pie. They were like the Billy Gillis and Energy G. Krebs at their time. And they were talking about a book they'd And it sounded really interesting. I won't say was the book. And I bought the trade, five issues in the trade. And it was all brown. I it. All the characters, none of the characters looked at each other. There was no physical body language of any kind. And in five issues, there wasn't a single subjective image of any
6: kind of any page. Not once in any of the characters you gave to me as the reader. And that's something I know for a
1: fact that he does constantly, and I do as well. Because I believe that one of, the, one of the things we forget about in comics is you are in collusion with us. It is a shared experience. You are the engine of the page. Okay? You're responsible for moving the story along. We're responsible for giving you enough of a story to, give, to make you give a shit enough about moving that story along, and so much of that, in my opinion, is a subjective relationship with the reader. Did you agree?
2: Yeah, no, I, I agree. It's too when you were saying that about getting back to what you said about theater. I remember having a conversation with Stan Drake. Stan Drake, who was a phenomenal illustrator for romance strips called *Heart of Julia Jones* in the '60s and '70s, eventually went on to do *Blondie*. Which makes no sense <laughs> whatsoever. Well, he, as you said, well, that was again. You gotta make a living because the romance stuff had dried up. Right. But he and he wouldn't have gone to work for Marvel. He was, he was actually he was doing inking for Marvel. Mm-hmm. When he was doing it, but there was more money in the blondie stuff because of the connection with yeah. Dean Young and Raymond uh, Raymond's front, son, son Jim. Uh, Jim. Jim, Jim Raymond. Yeah. Jim Ray. now, now, was he fast on that? Oh, he was <clears> very fast yeah. on that stuff. Um, on the blondie stuff. Well, eventually he became much faster. When he first started out, he actually had clip files right. of just nothing but the images and that he would light box. And he said, he goes, I'm not a cartoonist. He goes, I'm an illustrator drawing in the style of a cartoonist. That's what he took on the assignment. That was my reaction. Right. right? But let me beg Yeah, no, and he would, he would say that. But one of the things that he also said was that he also brought a theater. He said that comics, in terms of acting, he said what was really important for comics is he said that he really sort of despised the Mary Worth style of stuff where all the characters are sort of looking off to the corners of the panels and sort of interacting. And Stan felt that it was not over there. It was over there. It was a grand gesture. So, and again, Neil sort of came in after Stan and sort of did everything with the hands and and all that. So I'm getting a cup of coffee, you know? But I think
1: that's a really valid point. Stan really is a pivot in that sense. There's a guy who teaches up at Stanford, East film studies named Scott McCatman, who I know since he was a kid. He lived around the corner from me and Simon, so we were living in Brooklyn. And he had never really heard of Drake's work. He didn't he was <coughs> aware of it. And I wrote an introduction, one of Charlie Beltos paperback trade, trade paperback of the material. And he was flabbergasted by his relationship to what he was teaching in film studies. That's selling of the idea. And that Drake, I mean, I don't know anything about Drake other than the Alex Raymond stuff and some other things that Dennis told him. But for a fact... The work represents, in these three-panel daily strips, a level of emotional depth that is almost absent from most comic books today.
2: Well, I, if, if you don't mind, I can actually tell you how we look at the same thing with Bernie Fuchs as an illustrator, the sort of captured moment, as opposed to something <clears> being set up as a plateau, and this sort of freeze. Stan came by that, all of that incredibly honestly. Stan was, as a younger guy, he was actually a really good-looking guy. He wanted to be a oh, bit no, right of the And his father was also, I think, a radio guy. Stan, one of his friends or a bunch of his friends got together and basically took Stan's name and entered him into a audition contest for Phil. Stan went out to L.A. and he said that he smoked like he goes, I went through three packs of cigarettes doing this scene with this woman. He ended up getting selected to do a a series that was going to be sort of a a competition series for not the Dobie Gillis stuff, but Nicky Rooney. You know, the whole Mickey and Rooney stuff. What oh, about like Andy uh, Hardy? Andy Hardy type okay. stuff. As, like, a younger than the Hunts Hall stuff that eventually became... But he was actually going to be an actor on film. And what happened? What happened was he was all set to go. He signed the contract. The next day was December seventh, right. 1941. Stan went to the military. He became, Vietnam. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so when Stan got out... He wanted to look for all of his film and it was it was all pretty much destroyed. And it was actually Jackie Gleason and uh, who Art Carney, Art Carney who was a friend of his, said, Look, at any given time there's only fifteen percent of any actor working. He said, You're you a gifted draftsman, you should get into... like See you know, what what surprises me is that he that you know he didn't
1: become a comic book man because his stuff has everything that's called for in a comic book line. I wrote an introduction for the Left and Charlie Byrow crime stuff. You know, you, Crime Does Not Pay, the truly drecky comics, okay, they're really awful. And when you look at that stuff, you realize two things. One, it's the work of assistants. It's very, very clearly the work of guys working for other guys. And two, in all likelihood, one out of three of those guys was working as a mainstream journeyman illustrator within 10 years of doing that. If you go to almost every illustrator you know of a certain generation, it's at least one, two, or three comic book jobs back in the ground. And it's always that way, okay? Mm-hmm. I've always wondered why those guys, you know, like like Koskotsky went from comic books to the strips, and it was just
5: great. But Drake, Drake seemed to me like a natural. And I thought, and Gil Kane once was sniffly, that's what he did, he was always yeah, sniffly,
1: yeah. sniffly dismissed Neil Adams as as making comic books safer commercial life. Now really a pseudo observation, but you know, hey, shut up! He's right, but fuck it. We're digressing now. You have a question? I did have a question. Was it a good one? <laughs> yeah. Stand question. up and share it with us.
4: All right. A couple things. No, no, just one. When you talk about Robert Fawcett, those guys, yeah. you know, that whole generation that was in, like, 1940s and 50s, yes. Yeah, in Westport, you know, who did the famous artist book. And right, all right. That stuff. What we're not talking about, and we really, really need to pay attention to, opportunities weren't available to everyone. Were or were wow. not? Were not. When we talk about comic books, we know specifically, as a Jew, that a lot of Jews could not work in mainstream Yes, <laughs> As a Brooklyn person,
5: just like you, just so you this is what baby. we're talking about. Yeah. So
0: it's really important that
5: we talk about that That comic books were another venture that the Wasp and other
1: people... But, to quote Robert Gordon... There's a line in, in Hey Kids Comics where one of the characters says, isn't that what comics are? Jews fucking over Jews? <laughs> and, uh, right. and I stand by that. I and mean, when yeah. I came into the business, very aggressive to this, he healed the
6: book No, the book no, it's okay.
2: I'm, I'm just taking in what he said, what you're saying, and also thinking, I'm Polish. I'm Polish. <laughs> 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 the, the, the only Polish guy
1: around with, in general was Bob Powell. I had no idea. Oh, yeah. Bob Zabloski? And And he was a raving, Jew-baiting anti-Semite. Hated Isers, guys. Sorry, guys. You know, because we killed Christ. (laughs) I read about it in the paper. We did. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Or at least we just got the contract. You know? (laughs) So, yeah. But I think you raise a valid point. That illustration was in its time a waspy business. The exception is a guy like Salt Pepper, who's clearly a waspy. But comics were a place for Jews to work. It's really true. When I came into the business, all the old guys, with the exception of Murphy, who was this honeyboard southerner, were really the Jews or Italians. I mean, I met Gil when I was 13, and he was just this tower, this fabulous speaker, and Joe Hubert. and then Toth, who was also another Jew later. okay? When I went to work for Gil at the age of 18, I told this story last time I was here, and it's true. Gil was a guy who was like Casper Guppy; He was a man who liked talking to a man who liked to talk, and he was a very, very voluble guy. I am as well. And one day he said, we're not going to work for about an hour. And he said, here are the anti (laughs) (laughs) semites
5: No bullshit.
1: Now bear in mind, these are the guys that he spent every Friday evening with having cocktails. Because he was in Westport. He was literally, you know, drinking, babies up, you know.
2: I'm I'm just thinking, I had dinner with Gil, my ex-wife, and Bern Hogarth. Oh, that must have been one fucking other guy. I'm, I'm (laughs) uh,
1: I'm just... Real Kog- living moments. Hogarth looked and sounded like a drawing he had done of the dean.
6: <laughs> <laughs> he was one of the
1: most loathsome people I've ever met in my life. And anybody who could intimidate Gil came, and he really put Gil through his face. As reached by that night. I mean, half of my time spent with Gil in the last couple of years of his life was, shed this stuff. You have outdone your influences. You have moved beyond your influences. And he never believed it. He died not knowing that. He died refusing to believe that. Which I find really repulsive and scary. It demonstrated the hold that they had on him. Because Gil was a perfect example of a monomaniac with no self-esteem, who hated himself deeply, who was just like filled with self-loathing. He gets this nose job in 1949. And the minute the nose job takes place, he, turns, he transforms from this shtetl boy, this, this extra and fiddler on the roof,
6: into a Charles Saxon-derog. <laughs> who it turns out, by the way, did the same transformation. I always thought Saxon was a wasp. But Saxon was one of our people. A nice Jewish boy. Thank you, Charlie, you know. And as soon as that happened, all of that shtetl stuff, all that
1: Yiddishkeit, lodged itself in his system to so profound a degree that he could take me, his first Jewish assistant, and give me the list of the anti-Semites. It wasn't until years later that I found out that, as I said,
5: you know, all the guys, the Walkers, the Browns, all the guys that he drank, I went to cocktail parties with on Friday nights. Years later,
1: I met the Palm with my second wife. And the Palm was a tradition for us because the Palm had been a cartoonist place. For comics guys went to eat when they could afford it. <laughs> and I'm walking down the stairs, I'm at Palm Two, and I'm walking down the stairs, and the bottom of the stairs is a drawing of Amy by Jack Tippett. And that was the first of the anti Semites. And I literally had one of those sense memory moments of like this. Just literally registered on I me mean, without intellectually registering, but like emotionally meaning, oh my God. And the fucked up of the relationships of the comic book business that preceded my generation of did. Because these guys started at 14, they were children. You can't know how long these lives spent hating themselves, hating each other. You can't know how much Carmen Infantino and Bill Payne hated each other with a passion from the time that they were 14
3: till their deaths. I
1: had to have Joe Orlando navigate for me the 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 corridors of DC Comics (laughs) because Carmen knew I knew Jill. Not a joke. The venality, the pettiness. We all promised ourselves we would never sink to that level five years in, right on
2: (laughs) that. Well, Westport was kind of a microcosm of all of that too. Having dinner with Bill, I mean, and it's interesting because I remember reading his Adam comics, and it was like, and all of those fantastic images of looking up the nose of all of these characters. I hate people point that trope out. No, leave the man alone. No, but no, no. But, I, but what I felt was is that that's how I felt like that's how he viewed everybody. He did talk to my boy, well, but I'll you where that came from if you want. What I'm aware of is that. What you were just saying about, I guess, the, the trauma, for lack of a better word, I can still recall how Gil and Byrne were at each other. And anytime, and Byrne was actually doing everything he could to not only destroy. Gil, but also me. He was actually putting right. the moves on my wife at I the time. Remember this. I remember this. Uh, <laughs> oh no, 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 this guy's yeah. <laughs> We were in our twenties. He was like what seventy. 70 no, he was 70, years ago. Okay, that's right. <laughs> okay. But but to see, I wasn't super keen on like, our super hip, but I, I was able to catch these micro expressions on Gil's face of almost like he was sort of getting punched a bit, and it was really kind of. Because, to me, both of these guys, more so Gil, because I knew Gil's work much better. Well, also, yeah. let's face it, Hogarth was a fraud. Oh, yeah, I bought those friggin', if you... Come have, on. Yeah, I bought those <laughs> Dynamic Anatomy, they're, like, trees <laughs> die for that.
6: It's, it's, it's <laughs> you know?
2: but it was uh, interesting to see how he was just doing everything he could to, even if Gil was making a really good point, it was like Hogarth would have none of it. It was almost like there was an attack mode that he was on because he was making it all about him. At one point, he was talking to me about art history, and he mentioned And I had no idea what Fabism was. And he looked at me, and he was like, basically, he's like, can you believe he doesn't know who Fab?" is? And he sees hugging my wife and just, like, coming at me. And I was like, at one moment, Bill and I just sort of looked at each other. He goes, he's like, I'm you're on your
1: own. <laughs> you cannot know the competition for the pile that existed from where? I don't know what it was like for guys for you. You were the guy of your generation, whether you know it or not. When you came in, Frank was inept and crude, but he had energy and rage, which is what I had. okay? But you had skills already. What it was like for me when I came in, Have Bernie Bryson waiting for me in the room. This is a tragedy, because there is no way you can compete with Bernie Bryson. <laughs> Understand this. This is the truth. I mean, Bryson was like Again, he worked hard, and his work got better and better as he ate, but he immersed in the brown zoos. His work was astonishing. I mean, come on! You see this work, and he was a clock. I mean, he was kind of a dumbass. But, you know, he, he was a, a turkey out in the rain, looking up, waiting. No. <laughs> and, but, but the work was, was staggering. I mean, he was just
6: fucking brilliant.
1: And you couldn't compete. So you had to find some other way around. You had, you had to do a workaround to get to where you wanted to be. And I believe that to a certain extent, You've made people feel the same way about (coughs) your people, your crew. Because you came in five years after me. When we mean you, Starlin comes in. And Starlin is the first guy, other than Rich Butler, who's available to what Stan needs. Okay? And I cannot convey how much my generation believed. Maybe it was just bullshit to each other. But we all believe the second volume of A Kids Comics is about EC and its impact on my generation 20 years after the fact. And that impact comes from those Valentine paperbacks that were hanging in the newsstands and, and drugstores in the early 60s. All of us in my generation, the exception of Simonson, had come to comics because of those books. They had an enormous impact on And the fact that you come along and are able to satisfy Marvel's needs, because DC was functionally irrelevant. DC was a company that followed what Marvel was doing at that point. Marvel really owned the game at that time. And I have to think that guys coming along after you we were intimidated by the fact that you could clearly do pretty much whatever you wanted to do. You may say it was hard for you to do it, but we both know that once it gets on paper, the difficulty vanishes and the papers will remain. You have to look at your stuff. I never understood, I do now, but I never at that time understood why the comic recordings preferred John Byrne's work to your work. And I do now. I understand why now. But this is the same reason why life a popular panel.
7: No, I'm serious. I'm, I've heard this. This. Uh, if you're going
2: in this direction, I think you are. Forgive me for jumping in. There is a perception among fans who want to get into into the business that they find a talent who sort of sets the low bar. And, Who's and, courage and, you Want to kill? Yeah. 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 Well, <laughs> no, I, that,
6: that's fair. Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah. But I think that's to a certain extent the way it is. But I don't think there were fans out there who wanted to be. That saddens me. It really does. What? did they did or did not. One of the things I've come to realize, Clark Diamond died this week. Clark Diamond was a guy who was an old EC fan, probably a five years my senior. He was a guy who, in his writing, I had one of those epiphanies that, like, why didn't I see this before? That the Comics Code Authority didn't just infantilize the comic book business, it also infantilized the audience. It also created an audience, it drove away an audience who would be interested in material that was pushed a little bit further, and left behind people who, had, in his words, would be happy with a pat on the head and a no <laughs> and it's emotionally true. I said this in print and one of Burns' acolytes became very upset with me that if anybody had told me that the most popular artist of the 1980 would be someone who was as cypherous. I mean, John's work is incredibly proficient technically
2: but really uninteresting. There, it's interesting we're sort of talking about all of these different styles and everything else and different people because There is kind of a through line to all of this, at least in in the way way I'm interpreting it. One thing I just want to say about Bernie, it's like part of the issue is working on something, the pain of loving something too much or the curse of thinking about something too much. I think Bernie thought about what he thought about, and only that. I don't think Bernie, like when you you said that he might have been a cluck or whatever, it's It's like (sighs) I don't think he necessarily was. I just think he didn't delve as deep into other arenas as... Certainly, like... I will, not only navel-gaze, I'll climb up my own ass and turn myself inside out to avoid being one of those people who is absolutely sure that I'm right. I would rather presume a level of ignorance. That's the Catholic in I'm it's true. It's that concept of doubt.
1: that constant questioning of moral value. That's really where it comes from. Great example.
2: It has to do with certainty, because people who are absolutely certain are, to me, some of the most dangerous people on the planet.
1: I mean, I live in a constant state. I mean, I'm a Jewish guy who was raised by Catholics. It's right. not a joke. I spent the first three and a half years of my life in a Catholic family. Because I'm illegitimate. I'm a bastard literally in favor of them. And um, when I was planted in a, in, a, in a Catholic family, the patriarch of which was the lighthouse keeper in New York Harbor. They were German Catholics who changed their name from some incredibly horrible German World War I name, to to Westgate, so they became English all of a sudden. And they (laughs) raised me. And I was deeply steeped in Catholicism until my mother found out they were converting me. And she pulled me out when she married the guy I thought was my father. And so I'm enraptured. If ever the day came that I ever was actually struck by a belief in God, it's likely that I would find myself as a Catholic, despite all the bullshit. Because there is the, the mystery, the physical beauty of the mass, everything about it, it saddens me. I can still bring up. That sense memory of the, the smell of incense. And when I read Camille Paglia about the statues of the saints, I got it. The lubriciousness of those statues, the sexiness of it, there's something so phenomenally attractive about shame in
5: the guilt.
6: <laughs> I'm not kidding. Come on.
1: Guilt is for, shame is of. Okay? I'm completely obsessed with it. I really am. I love it. I mean, at least one yeah. of my
2: lives. <laughs> <was>. um, <laughs> You know, struck me from the very first moment I met you was even though you were very facile with your words, you weren't glib, though. It was like there was a level of mm-hmm. intellect and a constant striving about reason in everything that you seem to do. I mean, your that method comes from guilt. But your methodology. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I, mean, I mean, I remember there were a couple of times, I think, when I worked trying to assist you, and I think probably making things probably ultimately many, many times more worse and making more worse for you. you making um, you look bad. No, the way you would approach things, because one of our biggest, you know, interesting conversations, or not even necessarily areas of disagreement, was your claiming to me that I lack structure. And I still stand by Okay. It. No, no.
5: It, but it's no longer the case.
2: Well, but it's what led me to create the character of Harvard Chalky and Stray Toasters, you know, hey, you know, like, who is all about structure. And he did think I knew. I'm sure I'm tell. But the point is, is that the fact that you... <coughs> challenged beyond that. It's like as much as we had our moments of sort of back and forth, nobody made me think as much as you did about stuff. And the reason for that that obsession with structure is based on absolute insect
1: fear. It really is. It's it's lizard fear. Because for me, I cannot imagine working the way Elmer Leonard did without an apple. Right. Oh, yeah. I just can't. I mean I love Leonard's work. Certainly one of my five favorite prime writers. Absolutely but Every so often, his stuff just, you know, get ready to run over by a truck. And I feel that way about Alan, for example, Alan Moore. I was called his Swamp <coughs> Singh Saga. And I'm reading it, it's fantastic, and then it just sort of, melts, no, it goes away. But talk about structure, I've worked with Alan.
2: So, so I brilliant. actually...
1: So it's sweat labor in reading. Have you ever read one of Alan Moore's scripts? I mean, literally, they're
2: like phone books. Literally, <laughs> yeah. like books.
1: <laughs> and every sentence ends with, and of course, if you have a better way of doing this, please
2: be <laughs> Which is sort of like, <laughs> of the of this last, and say, look, if you want to play football, you know, knock yourself out. I mean, it was the kind of thing where I would work with him on it, and I would just read through everything, and he would give background characters, stories, and everything else, and I thought, how am I going to deplus plus this in any kind of a way? Like, call him up and say, I gave a character a beard? You know? <laughs> it's like, the point was, I'm either going to draw this, or I'm going to put a bullet in my head. How many pages did you do? Forget issues. How many pages did you do? Big numbers? Yeah. I, well, I think I did 32 pages with him in Brought to Light, which was a whole other thing. And then I did three issues of 48 pages. I At this point, it's like it's it's lost to, you know. It's time. Yeah, <laughs> It's all a bore. I literally painted myself into a corner with that. What about is that I had 45 different models that I was working from. And I set my up a standard for myself. I'm going to go in. I'm going to paint. air. I'm going to do things out of focus, I'm going to airbrush focus. So I'm going to try to capture everything in the panel by hand. It's like I'm going to airbrush stuff out. Like I said, out of focus. I'm going to tighten things up. I want to make sure everything is legitimate. I got 45 different characters I'm working with. I've got to hire models for stuff. And there were some scenes where there are little kids making Molotov cocktails. And of course, you know, and Westport, being very waspy, it's like, at the time I had long hair and blonde hair, and I'm driving around, and I'm asking parents if I can actually take photos of their little kids. And I had to, I actually had to pretend that they were, like, making lemonade as opposed to Molotov cocktails. Now, <laughs> would
1: you agree that in retrospect, you wish you'd call it a, a Steve Park as a black and white simple cartoon? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. It's the Bo like, Jeffrey saga. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, I mean,
2: it's, well, that's the thing that's striking me more and more now. The more I'm doing, and it's, I'm ashamed in some respects that I have to keep relearning lessons that I thought I'd already learned. What kind of easy is that? I mean, yeah. One of the reasons you're still working, one of the
1: reasons I'm still working, is that we are at least willing to admit that an annual reinvention is a requirement of the maintenance of the career. One of the reasons why there's only one other person in my generation who's would work it is not, not a parody of itself. Is the fact that those guys become subsumed with satisfaction at the work they're doing, and they reach a certain plateau, and they begin to repeat themselves. And I'm too terrified to repeat myself, so I got to find something else to do. I believe you're in the same boat. Yeah. You bore easily, so do I.
2: Do you bore easily on the same day, or no, do you take no, no,
1: no, no? I have a work ethic that is enviable. How long does it take for it to run sports? I don't work in terms of time anymore. Okay. I don't work against time. I work against mission. My work life is very organized. I live in a small town. I look like a hobo most of the time. And it's true. But I only think enough to be seen in public because all these fucking selfies and shit. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I have breakfast with Peter on, on a regular basis and I, and I generally come in looking like a homeless guy. The fact Suddenly that I don't feel so bad. No, no. <laughs> no I don't feel so bad. is a very effective way of spending money. Right, my my <laughs> door is always <laughs> open. My Sunday night consists of knowing what I'm going to be doing on Friday next. I organize my time card. I really had it all laid out. I know what I'm doing. If I finish at 3, I'm done. I watch television the rest of the afternoon. If I finish at 7, my wife feeds. When I was teaching at Marvel, I did a a six-year series of seminars at Marvel. And the first day of that was always about time management. Because comic books, you know what I'm talking about, attracts hobbyists. All of us are guys who who drew comics on our mother's cutting board on the dining table. Everybody else is a singer. That's just it. Anybody who tells me they hate the comics as a second choice is a lying sack of shit. <laughs> comics has more to common with the Jesuits than anything else. It is a <laughs> it cult. It's the old
2: uh, Arthur Miller, it shows <clears throat> you.
1: You know, the golden age of comics is 12 because that's really when it's imprinted on you. You know what's going on. You are owned by it. It, it takes your ass and steam. it just steals your soul. And the difference between the generation of preceded mine and my generation and Bill's is that
6: we went in with no expectations. I say this with, complete, you know, with no fear of contradiction, but this was it. It was the B.B.O. i The generation that preceded us, I believe, went in thinking this was a
1: waste station, leading to something else more important. And every one of those guys died, terrified to find out that the work that they held in contend for 40, 50 years was the work of their <coughs> And what separates us from that is that we went in with eyes open that it was the work itself. I'll never forget, I'm at Marvel, Years ago, this is really And I mean, Mike Esposito. I mean, all of us, I mean, I was a big fan of Ross Andrew. Okay. Because right? I had been schooled on Ross Andrew. Everybody hates Ross Andrew. of so Mike Esposito. Because he named him badly and he really fucked him up. Esposito's passes are breathtaking. the sense of depth, the sense of scale, the sense of volume. You can't have John Cosagasia Lopez without Ross Andrew. He's not as pretty as J.G. Young. But the volume and the shape and form. I use the word fan in the company of Esposito and the contempt, the utter drip. The disdain with which he greeted this was staggering to me. It was very revealing to me. Those guys had such contempt for their audience, for the readers. It just ran deep and profound, except for a couple of guys, Gil being one of them. Gil really identified who's willing to listen to the audience. These guys just really were separated from that and woke up one morning and
2: realized that nothing else was coming down the pipe. When you were talking about Burn, Again, he lived in the one town over from
3: in, in Connecticut. he's like the Susan Cain of Connecticut. He right? lives in his
2: town. Yeah, except that he's now living in the remnants of the glass globe. You know, <laughs> 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 it's like everything shattered around him. Because actually, I remember when he when he was married. My experience with John can be summed up in this little anecdote. Is that I remember going to <coughs> Mark Runwell his his memorial, <laughs> and I very rarely saw John at all. And John, I was actually with. Mark's widow, and we were walking, we saw John, and John was standing on a stairwell overlooking everybody who was there for the memorial. And I walked over with her, and I'm blanking on her name right now, forgive me. Um, Mrs. Rommel. Yeah, Mrs. River. <laughs> <heard that. laughs> <laughs> I said, It's good to see you. I'm sorry, it's under these circumstances. She just stopped and he said, Well, you know me, Bill, nothing can keep me down. And then she turned and walked away. And then on the way home, because he actually gave me and my girlfriend a ride back, he proceeded to tell me that he wasn't like me. He goes, I'm not an innovator. He goes, I don't want to try something new. He goes, I'm a fixer. I take what's wrong with comics, which has been done before, and I fix it. And I thought, it's like he just told me everything about himself right there. And I'm not saying that to malign him. No, 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 no. But no, that, that, is, that is fantastic because it goes directly...
1: Without any names, this is the only right now, this essay which addresses the fact that we work in the business of universal That is a variation on the theme business, with all variations on the themes. And that when you get down to it at its core, the paradigm in comic book is Chuck Jones' rover and It's all about an endless,
3: unfinished chase in which characters go to corporately own and never actually achieve closure in their world. And John is the architect That's fantastic. (laughs) (laughs) The piano,
2: you know, that will fall eventually.
3: Drawing like Kyle Baker. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Kyle Baker, that is dumb. Yes, right?
2: (laughs) (laughs) Just to go back to what you were saying earlier about Gil and about him going to his grave, not knowing, still being. Tortured in some respects? Yeah, okay, so How much of that, and whether it's, you know, I don't know, whether it's Catholic guilt or Jewish guilt or whatever. It's kind of Catholic shame, it's Jewish Catholic, Jewish Catholic, Okay, <laughs> <Hey. laughs> <laughs> thank Separate issue. Well, uh, <laughs> <laughs> How much of that, if you feel, fits the paradigm of somebody who gets into comics of that level of what causes comics to choose us? I mean, what is it that you believe in our DNA? I found comics for me. I discovered comics when I was four years old. Two cousins, eight and 12 respectively, had outgrown them, and they'd given me their comics. And in those days, this is 1955, you read all kinds, they read it. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and I was imprinted on it
6: immediately. It was imprinted on me immediately, and instinctually I knew, at 4, rather that someone made these things. That these were not just organic objects that occurred. And I wanted to be that. Guy. And I had no talent, no skills
1: at it. I never did, but I had hunger and blackmail. There's a lot to be said for this. Trust yeah, me. You on can't underestimate rape. Um, Gil was very much the same. Gil was a guy who started experimenting with him, Jack Kirby. And it isn't until he finds himself in the relationship with Homer, of developing that flayed figure. You know, going from, from the Mac Rayboy, Kevin <laughs> Arnold Jr. figure, the Lou Fine figure, to getting these plates of muscle, those body things. And when he does that, he begins to develop a point of view. His problem, and I believe this is true is that the great unifying factor of all the men who mentored me is none of them could write worth a shit. Gil couldn't write, Gray couldn't write, Woody certainly couldn't write. <laughs> the one who's still alive can't write, I won't end And because of that, they were trapped in the cycle of servicing other people's work. And when they tried to write, their rage came through in the text. And in Gil's case, he was a smart guy. He was an autodidact in 10th grade educated. Let, let school become a comic book. And he could not get back what it was that common thread that maintained. When I met him, I worked with him on Black
5: market, which was just awful.
1: Awesome. I realized that he no longer read the material that he was doing. He wasn't as conscious of what he was competing with as he should have been. And my feeling is, if you're going to come up you with know the fuck what you're competing with. If you're going to write a Western, read the best Western you've ever read and try to destroy it. That line about, you know, you don't want to play tennis by reading a book about playing tennis. You learn to play tennis by playing somebody who can beat you. And
6: Absolutely. that's what it's yeah.
1: about. Yeah. Okay. And by the time he was doing this stuff, he'd lost any real interest. And he wasn't entertained by it. But he couldn't even analyze it. Extant and separate from being entertained by the material, he couldn't even analyze this stuff to understand it. To get value. Of it. I don't think he could bring himself to
2: read the material analytically. In general, I mean, not just simply of the medium, but... To be thinking, I mean, because one, one of the things that I, that I find is that people who really do have longevity, in a real true sense, are the people who are always questioning or always analyzing.
1: Yes, not in the material itself. Okay. Look, look, I mean, you remember a couple of years back, you may not even be aware of it, there's a real kerfuffle going on in the comic book business about using photographs for reference. What do these people
6: think? <laughs>
1: <laughs> if you can do it, you do it. See how it works out for you. You know? Or a light box. Mind true true and see how far you get. You know what I'm saying? yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, like, okay? and we all use photographs because basically we are in the business of capturing a version of reality and I tried to teach you how to you it was. it was one of the most frustrating experiences of my life I introduced him to Don Cameron who was in awe of him and just the frustration was huge because he never learned how to slow down he was what Eisner thought Kirby was he was a six page a day of
2: Interesting. okay
1: and he couldn't stop he couldn't go beyond the generic city the generic car, the generic suit and you and I both know that what sets us apart from guys like John is that there's a specificity to the choices you make, that that woman is wearing a specific
5: kind of shoes.
2: It's like the word cipher is thrown around a lot, but it's like, you know, there's a the cipher for an eye. You can do a Charles Schultz cipher for an eye, basically it's that. Whereas you take, like, say, a Neil Adams or a Stan Drake, if they just make it up without looking at photo reference, because of all the years that they have used photo reference, It's still a cipher. It's very different to look at your eye as opposed to your eye as opposed to your eye. You have the mirror on your desk, right? Right. Yeah, absolutely. Everybody works with a mirror on their desk.
1: I just posted a Times Square piece on Facebook. And Larry Hama says, well, you guys look like your expression. (laughs) I have a very, very active face. I mean, I may not be pretty. There's stuff going on here that creates it. I got a mug, you know? And you use your mug. So you do. You learn a caving by accident, but you'll learn nonetheless.
2: The fact that he didn't introspect in that way, that's a really good point. Like you need to be aware of what is out there. But how do you feel about the fact of some people who just sort of feel, I'm just gonna do my own thing? Or like a you know, Zukalski or somebody like that. Like, again, again, he's not a comic book guy, but you know, look, you know, come
1: on. There's a website devoted <laughs> to the fans of Alex Dove. And drawing like Alex Stowe is not being influenced by Alex Dove.
2: I'm, I'm,
1: I'm more in <laughs> now than I ever It grows. Yeah. I mean, you look at this stuff and you say, I'm such an unbearable and sufferable human being. <laughs> been, I was such a horrible person. And he really was. I mean, trust me. Just apocalyptically awful. you check and see how awful he was was awful meter? Love you too. What's that? No, no. He was the worst. <clears> he dated my so second David Armstrong introduced me to Alex Dove. In
5: 1975. Hogarth talked about himself all the time. I, Alex did not talk about no, himself. No, he talks shit about everybody else. <laughs> 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 I'm okay with that. He didn't want to do the to
6: that. <laughs>
1: there you go. Are you enjoying this? or? are not going to be able in the passing in about 15 years. We've got each other in the room. We communicate on Facebook. And we hate the same people. It's um, <laughs> a really good thing. I'm going to be working on it later on this evening to try to make hate other people that I hate that he hasn't learned anything yet. <laughs> um, There are people in this room already saying exactly what I'm talking about. Sparrow, I'm looking at you. So, questions, thoughts, ideas, instincts. This guy was brave enough to stand up and offer a question about Jews. <laughs> I
5: have a question. Hey, Jack. Hey. You mentioned briefly, like, uh, Gil's tendency of referring to everyone. Ah. Uh, Where did that come? from? Symphony Sid. Jumping with my boy,
1: Sid, in the city. Jumping with my boy, Sid, in the city. He's the president of the DJ committee. Symphony Sid Cullen was great greatest jockey in New York City in the 40s and 50s. He was the guy who introduced Charlie Parker. Boy, boy, the guy wants to see a white Christmas. Come on, what do you say? You know? And he ended his career after you know, scandalizing his company by becoming a Spanish language DJ without speaking any Spanish. He, did, he literally worked phonetically in the last two years of his life. Soy su hermano. Symphony Sid, word. Swear to God. That's where Gil Kane got it from. Okay. That's where my voice from. Also the fact that he never meant anybody's names because he was going to be
5: But true. But true. Uh, Scott, you yes, got something? Yeah, I've got a question for Bill. When you first started at Marvel, did you ever like stay within the lines? Or is it be you.
2: Maybe you. <laughs> you
5: finally were able to break free and be you.
2: Okay, well the, again the similarity here, I mean I I, I will answer this, but it's like Comics, pick me. I don't know how old you were when you basically said out loud, "I'm going to do this when for a living." I was living. four. Okay, you no, were four. I was seven. seven. I told my father oh, yeah, when I was, I was seven, I'm like, prepared. "This is my jam." When in I'm those I- words. No. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I love an anachronism in a childhood story. Dad, <exactly. Yeah. laughs> I'm doing this. It's like here's another thing you can blame on me for your drinking. You know. <laughs> <laughs> it's like. <laughs> uh, Parents dead is good. I actually wanted to get into comics. Pretty much was following through on that goal ever since I was a kid. Didn't think I was good enough for Marvel. So I actually went in my second year of art school. All of my friends were older and they were graduating. And I sort of felt, well, let me just see if I can get a portfolio together for comic books for DC. And I remember seeing that blanking out his name, I'll just leave it at that, who was actually doing work in sort of very Neil Adams style at the time. And I thought... At DC At DC. And I thought, if he can get work, I know I can get work. Buckler, right? No, Buckler was a Marvel. Grell. It? It, 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 it was it was It was my Grell. And again, I love Mike, great guy, but it was like... I you thought, take him. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So like, like, I basically thought, it was like, you have to admit, if you're going to get into this business... It's like everybody thinks about comic books being sort of this superhero benign, sort of silly stuff for kids. It's fucking cutthroat. It's twat. <laughs> it's what? It's twat. It really is. <laughs> we are just, as I said, five years in, we all became exactly the of shit guilt that our previous generation <laughs>
1: <laughs> You know, fuck you, no, fuck you, no. And to a great extent, I got my first major job, the factor job, because I aced another artist out of it. Another guy was assigned to the job. And I said, I can do a better job. I was lying. I couldn't. But the editor, Danny O'Neill, had doubts about the other guy's ability to deliver. I went home, he gave us a page rate and said, go home and do samples. I came in, I spent literally 48 hours growing the fuck out of this stuff. And he phoned it in. I got the job. And typically, I was not available to bring quality to the job. So it was just, it was a terrible job that I did. I spent most of my life every night going to bed apologizing to the guy I don't believe in for the first eight years of my career. <laughs> That's how cutthroat things can be.
2: Right. You well, know. there is a level of competitiveness, and I, and I certainly felt that way when I would see other people who were getting jobs. That competitiveness all right, actually... All I have is money. Though. What's that? All I have money.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> I, don't want, guy. bucks,
2: you know? I don't want that guy's bucks. I want that guy's bucks because I oddly believe that there's enough to go around. I'm still a little bit of an you know, wow. I'm, you I'm are, still naive. You are yeah. the nicest person on the stage. <laughs> <laughs> I say a whole lot. No, no,
1: Michael's just patient. But
2: anyway, real quick, I actually put together a portfolio, and Neil Adams was the guy I grew up with, like falling. You see the guy who was green wanted to steal? I wanted to have like as much of a career as he had. I didn't. necessarily want to steal it because I didn't feel like I would be presumptuous enough to think I could steal it. I just wanted entry. Even though I had fallen in love with illustration, fine art, Rauschenberg, illustrators like Bob Peak and Bernie Fuchs, it was like all of this other stuff that encompassed art, from film to you name it, to music, that was already starting to percolate in there. But I thought, if I'm going to try to do comic books, to me, comics, I'll, I'll just go back to, to the Aladdin stuff. Even though there was a whole period of time when I was nuts about it. Sergio Aragonis, I would just, like, slavishly copy Sergio. I'd love to see that you know? stuff. Well, if you look at, like, New mutant stuff. Oh, yeah, Like, okay, you know, yeah, like yeah. with the mouths that go outside oh, of the horse face. It right. was, like, that abstract expression type stuff. There that, so, that was your hair on it. Though. Just- <laughs> <you> know, like, <laughs> comedy, kids, comedy. My. <laughs> uh... Alcohol days. I mean, that's the reason I pretty much stopped was the breaking of the drawing hand. So, yeah, so, that was really stupid. Yeah, I was. Yeah, but it was a wake-up call. Know.
1: A well, wake-up call. Yeah, you, you could have done it by doing it the other <laughs> yeah. hmm, hand. Yeah. Girl thing.
2: If anything it, it allowed me to have something to share with Barry Smith. You know, <laughs> so,
1: that there's such Catholic Mystery in that. Yeah, exactly. I'm, it's I'm, like you know. I want, I want to wrap myself in it for
2: this. No, if, I'm digressing all over the place. Oh, come on, what are we doing oh, here? Uh, <laughs> Barry hated by over him, he tore me to shreds, and I couldn't disagree with him, but the conversation, it eventually came around to the fact that we both used to play guitar and both broke our drawing hands, and somehow that didn't quite do away with all of the shit I put over his pencils, but it was like, it was this weird bonding thing. We're like feral cats, people who do comedy are feral cats. And we'll look at anything to bond when we get the opportunity. Yeah. Of course we don't we end up talking shit about it later on. There's no one
1: I can see your hand, your line working over less effective than Barry's. Barry has such a measured study.
2: I am not a pre raphaelite
6: <laughs> <I mean, laughs> like,
1: You're basically, you're like, basically you're right? a
6: post
1: or who guy by yes. way. <laughs> I mean, Jesus. It doesn't mix. I don't mean, know. It was like Woody, we'd be like, Woody can like right. It's Contextually weird, right? Right. But
2: just to come back real quick, I decided I wasn't good enough for Marvel. So I went to D.C. with a whole bunch of pages of, like, the Batman, Green Lantern, Green Arrow was, stuff. school did you work with? It was Coletta. The thing is, is that at the time I went, again, I lived three or four hours away in New Jersey. I bailed hay. I was a little I went with, with everything I was wearing was petroleum based. I mean, <laughs> there was nothing, there was no cotton. I had pants you could play chess on. You know it was like or checkers. Eiffel Tower Tie. I remember this. Yeah. It was embarrassing. Actually you look like you drew yourself. <laughs> <laughs> in, 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 in the, no no you.
1: the way that Tom Palmer looks like <laughs> Zach Davis drawing. That's true. Yeah. Right? Yeah.
2: Come on. You know? I went in there. There were no such thing as a day where you need to give a blood sample and need to have somebody, like, scan in your passport to be able to, like, let you in to, like, visit the editors, to just get in there. Because, of course, Marvel and DC are real targets of terrorism. <laughs>
1: right?
2: yeah. well that's at that point, I was just there. What finally got me in the door was that, I watched the receptionist do nothing but eat all afternoon. And I think I upset her so much. She was like, just staring at me. You know? And so I went in, Coletta actually said, I like your stuff. You'll be on the street in two weeks because of the implosion, whatever the right. f- that was. He said, I'm going to call Neil. So I went over to see Continuity, walked over with Tony Dispoto. It was somebody, it was one of his guys who was up at Neil, took me over to Marvel. So I basically got a job, a career at Marvel with a portfolio of nothing but D.C.'s <laughs> yeah. you know, I mean, and I was really just hoping to get a critique or a pinup or, like, kid, come back in six months or don't bother. I figured if I don't get any response at all, I can go back and finish my final year <laughs> of art school and I'll go into something else. And I literally walked out, like, my life had changed completely. It was one of those, you know, big deal things that happened, you know, on rare occasions, you know, it was pretty much of a shock for me, but it wasn't like I had planned it. I was too ignorant
5: to be afraid. <laughs> <laughs> but the time where you started and evolved, were there any editors holding you back from being you? Or was there a point where you were
6: allowed to have
5: free reign and just go off the rails and do the stuff? That...
2: I was pretty much, I was like the Trojan horse. I came in with just wanting to do Neil stuff. And then,
0: because, I, like I said, I'd
2: grown up on a farm, and there were very few other kids who were into comics, none of whom knew Neil Adams. It was like, for some reason, Neil's work spoke to me, even though when I first saw it, I despised it. It, was, it wasn't Kurt Swan, it wasn't comfort food. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. Because it wasn't Kurt, it wasn't Mo. Right. So when I started to get a lot of critiques, being a clone and everything else, all of a sudden I started to feel angry and invisible and... This sense of everything I put my, you know, commitment to, was somehow being called into question, and I started to feel invisible. And anger again, you know, that sense of feeling invisible and feeling denied and feeling kind of cast aside. All of that has its place in terms of, of providing a great level of interest and a catalyst for you to change. Because I was putting stuff in my sketchbooks, like I was into fashion illustration and I said, why can't we do stuff in comics where there's like you just see these like these women who are like 15 heads tall, this (laughs) swath of just charcoal for for her hair instead of all this other sort of anal stuff in comics. I said, why can't we do a building that is not drawn with a ruler? Because not every building needs to be drawn with a ruler because it's like that implies too much structure. (laughs)
6: <laughs> so, but what you're talking about I believe is the confluence of Your arrival And Reigns being released The Scott is getting at, Was there anybody trying to stop you From pushing material into a direction And by the time you came in
1: You locked down Had you come in when I was there With my generation You would have been much more constrained Because as much as Neil was respected By the time you came in He was suspected much more so In that late 60s early 70s the guys in the office like this, but
2: fans hate it. What you did, like with Scars and flowers, sort um, of evidence. Yeah, right. What you were doing with that was such a major influence. He didn't on me. make any money
5: at all. What uh, Arlen
1: said, I stand by. Arlen
2: Schirmerzi. Sure no, <laughs> I I know he's not right. Right. Uh,
1: I, I took him to task for one of he supporting one of his himself things. And what it comes down to is what he said was he, he denied this what he said, but exactly what he said, he said my function in comics in the '70s was to fail at doing graphic novels so that he could come along and do the successful. Hey, fuck you, guy. Basically, my work in the 70s was a I mean, I mean, I didn't come in Hawaii. I wasn't in the 80s. But I never felt that I had anywhere near to handle the technique that you had. You were just there. You know I mean? I spent the first 10 years of my career denying the value of technique and the rest of it, doing everything I possibly could to learn to do stuff. And it just seemed to me that you were a guy to catch up to. People talk about David McKean. McKean's work has a beauty to it but it lacks narrative value. Your work always has narrative value. That's really important. As I've gotten older, comics are about pictures with narrative value, That an image has meaning beyond its placement of character in space is the defining element of why the picture exists. And you've always done that. Even your most abstract
2: stuff it's always been that narrative value. When you were going through this, that Ronald Searle period, that's what I saw, and that's not our elements. Wordsmith wise, I mean, I was totally also into hundred sure Tom's. You know, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, <laughs> but, yeah, yeah. There were a lot of things that sort of went into the mix. When I finally decided that I was going to just either do what I was going to do, I love this medium. I feel like this medium can handle anything. It's not just cookie cutter stuff. <clears throat> it can handle fine art. It can handle abstraction. It can handle music. It can handle theater. It can handle all of it. And I'm either going to do that, or I'm getting out. Because it was really like do it or get off the pot kind of a thing. And like you may feel that what you did maybe didn't make any money, but it certainly impacted me in the sense of like I wanted to come in and take what you had done and find my own way to make it work. And again, I think a lot of it does have to do with time and certain things, because people talk about commitment and everything else, but there is definitely an element of luck. Look, and if you
1: were you're born, born in 60, 58, 58. Okay. I think if you been born in 30, you would have been a player at the ladies' home draft.
6: Yeah, okay, I can see that. I could.
1: I'm serious. Where we meet is the appreciation of a guy like Al Parker. Al Parker is, in my opinion, the greatest American illustrator of the mid-20th century ever. He was extraordinary, and as a goof—a phrase I hate using—but as a goof, in March of 1954, Parker illustrated seven stories in an issue
6: of *Cosmopolitan* in seven different styles using seven different pseudonyms, and it was an astonishing hat trick. The skill set you developed all in comics <laughs> <were> <laughs> been playable there. Weisinger well, was not going to be
1: hiring you. Yeah.
5: You know, it's as simple as that. It's funny how I noticed coming up to the '80s, both of your works. We talk about inherited yeah, I mean, here, too. As crazy as your work ever got, I always knew what I was looking at. The same thing with you, Howard. I was never mm-hmm. confused. Stedman stuff always looked kind of crazy. I mentioned uh, another artist, oh, uh, oh, sir. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. But with you guys, those are the fundamentals of the comic art that you knew when you were younger. You, you say, talk about your first eight years of your career not being very meaningful. Well, it obviously built to what you did in American Flying because that was a platform you built it upon.
1: People mistake my dismissal of that
5: work as a false modesty of self-deprecation. Yeah. No. What it is, it's
1: pride in craft. Yeah. It's pride in getting over that bullshit and moving on to this. Yeah. We learn. There's a lot to be said for that.
5: Right. Economics yes. right. can be an industry that can chew up and spit out younger artists, and the ones who decide that they're going to learn from any mistakes or failures, or the company going under or false checks or whatever it is,
1: stick with it. You know? There are people who I'm praying or spit at. <laughs> <laughs> I literally get up in the morning yeah. and I write a Yorkside candle. I say, can this guy's career, slip into the ether and just disappear. Well, you, know, I, you know the dessert's got nothing to do with it. No, i got a shit list that just continues to grow. And I'll share it with you if you're really interested, but I have to be kind
5: of a rolling. Someone said that, Bill, you know, I've met her before. I've never met you, but I just wanted to express my appreciation for the fact that I always knew what I was looking at, even if the kingpin looked like a mountain with a you know his tiny face. And this oh, giant. you mean the Spider-Verse? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> knowledge of art, I always knew what I was looking at, and I was never lost. Oh, thank you very much. Yeah. I mean, that's something... I'm sorry? There were imitators who tried to do what you were doing, but they didn't have the fundamental
2: vulnerability and narrative storytelling. I really do appreciate that. I mean, it's interesting. I mean, I was trying to do the things that I did, and then to see other people coming in sort of being influenced by me, like McKean, mm-hmm. you know. And one of the things that sort of hit me after I saw that stylistic arena sort of open up, was that for me, again, maybe it's because I I get bored easily at a certain point. It's like, okay, I've tried this. How can I apply this to a narrative form and not have it just be all about a visual just for its own sake? And one of the things that has always sort of driven me is to kind of continually go back to school. It's like Bernie Fuchs once said, the thing that, that interests him is the effect of light on objects and that to capture that. And at the end of the day, you can try all kinds of wild techniques. You can try all kinds of abstractions. But the simple ability to draw someone in and make them feel something that resonates, there's a beauty to that and a a universality to it. And I kind of feel like at the end of the day, to go back and just dig in again, the idea of learning, continually learning, but it's like you're
5: communicating not just with a giant audience, you're communicating one-on-one with the reader. But that's the subjective nature of what we're talking about. That's
1: exactly right. right. I mean, I talked about this earlier. I mean, that engaging with you, the reader, is for me at least the biological imperative of what we do. It astonishes me, because the old man's y- 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 and get off my lawn, that we now have a generation, at least two generations, of talent who have, for my money, lost the connection to that relationship with the reader. you talk about the reader being the engine. Exactly. Exactly. That's That's precisely what I said. And I believe that with all my heart. There's a reason pagination exists, that you cannot put a surprise on a right-handed page. Because you turn the edge. And one of the things that I learned in doing a seminar on Marvel as long as many years as I did was just the hobbyist nature of the people who are attracted to the business. That, That calling also applies to people who come in
6: and seem to forget that the minute they start taking money from people... They're professionals now, and they're cops, And they are part of a corporate
1: structure. Like it or not, tough shit. You know, it's the way it is. If you don't want to, you can do your own stuff. And I find it fascinating that there are two Van Skyvers working in comics. There's Ethan Van Skyver, and there's Noah Van Skyver. They're brothers, apparently. That not a joke. I, I just found this out recently. This is true. This is right. true. But if you know Ethan's work and his ethos, and if you know Noah's work and his ethos, it is staggering to me. I've just recently become acquainted with Noah Ben Skipper's work. For me, he's a modern-day equivalent of what Chester Brown might have evolved into had he not gotten off the deep end about some bizarre obsessions. And I love the engagement his work has with the audience. I really do. It makes me crazy. It makes me want to learn more about that kind of stuff, knowing full well that technically it's completely unavailable for me. I don't have that capacity for self-revelation. I will always mask autobiography because I'm not... I mean, I used to be good-looking enough to be a narcissist.
5: Now I'm just a soloist. And it's, it's hard, because I want to do stuff that, that's honest and true, but I also don't feel that my own personal story is as interesting as it should be. Yeah, of course, <laughs> a great place to do that. You've always yeah. been
1: honest. <laughs> well, yeah. I'm working on the, the second and third Augustate kids. The second <laughs> Arkansas involves people who aren't dead. That's going to fuck me up. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously. Yeah. I, mean, I can say lots of shit about people who are dead. I subscribe to the sign by which is always speak ill of the dead, because they can't defend themselves, you can't hurt their <laughs> yeah. but, Um
6: But I'm, I'm already working on those conflations. I'm trying to figure out how to conflate him because he shows up at the end of the second arc, but not him. But the essence
1: of what he represents, what I said earlier about what he represents. And I'm not sure whether I will include myself. I don't know. I'm already in the first arc. First out of the first arc. I'm there. But I watched a Gary Groth interview that Ben Saunders did a couple of years ago over the like, ECRF stuff. I learned something from that that I hadn't even connected before. From a snide crack, which I will not tell you about, but I'll probably later. A guy whose work we admire. Oh, okay. That's something many I'm amazed and appalled at the capacity for narcissism that exists on the, the non mainstream side of comics. Is it
5: because it's so small? I don't know. I tried to read Fun Home and I just want to punch the book in the face.
1: <laughs> I just I mean like I don't, why why no? It's insufferable. Musical's worse. I mean now I
4: feel terrible about myself. Yes. <laughs> what is the if there is a hold
2: up on doing a collection of memorial portraits that you share a lot? No, there's discussions about it. I'm working right now with a publishing company that has worked with Museum of Modern Art. So they're doing three volumes of my stuff. The first one is sort of a retrospective. Second is, I think, calling from about 50 or 60 sketchbooks that I have. And the third one may be about the memorial portraits. Again, I never get any of those for any other reason then to do them. It wasn't anything that I had thought about, but there may be at some point. Arm, wanted to ask you, when did you guys meet each other? What was you guys'
1: first initial thoughts on, on each other? I remember meeting him at a party that was hosted by Larry Hama, and then that's with Larry and Gary, and we were fucked up. Okay, well,
2: <laughs> it's interesting My my first recollection of actually meeting you that may have been where we actually spent some time together, right. but the first time I met you was actually when Joe Rubenstein brought me over to Upstart. I don't remember Joe being yeah, there. Yeah. Well, okay. Well, he came in. He introduced me, and then you said, "I like your shit," and I went, "Yeah, that's exactly what it is." And you looked at me and you looked at Joe. Goes, "Is he for real?" <laughs> yeah. No, no memory. But again, I was a drug addict I think it was like you looked at me like, like,
1: what is this? What kind of? Idiot, it's because like, yeah. you were raised on a farm. And didn't know this shit and <laughs> no, stuff. No, 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 I was also.
2: I, I couldn't take a compliment. Also, <laughs>
1: Like taking yes for an answer. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. was? Start was the, was the Bargain Basement version of the studio. The studio was Luda Wrightson, Jones, and, and Smith. Windsor oh, Smith. Really
2: I'm also Windsor Smith-Cavage. <laughs> which, which is actually another thing we bonded over. I forgot to mention that, but I digress. Continue. <laughs> and it's me and Walter. The original was
1: me, Walter, Dom Myrick, and Jim Starlin. I decided to leave, and they bought the telling egg. He said, Jim Sherman's moving in next week. So, you know, here he is, Jim Sherman. There's no idea. Frank Miller ended up replacing Starlin. This was the late seventies to the mid eighties. Simonson had this huge drawing table, which I think he still has—literally five feet wide, four feet high—and he works like this. <laughs>
3: <laughs> you know,
1: Walter has never dipped a pen into a ink bottle in his life.
2: He said he stopped.
1: It. Really? He said. Holy shit!
2: Because he used—that's one of the things. Right? Like, okay. He used
1: to, like, dip, uh, a Series 7 sable. Right. But he would also use the
2: 102, huh? 102 crow quill And he would actually take the ink <clears> dropper, <throat> squeeze some ink to it, hold the pen laterally, and just drip in some <laughs> of and then go back and then continue.
1: As Never was, did drugs. <laughs>
2: Never.
1: <laughs> Has had three pink coladas and two beers. <laughs> in total. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean, and he didn't finish the last pina colada. <laughs> yeah.
3: So he said,
2: he recently, I think he said, sort of like
3: this is like the apocalypse. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. So you guys brought on, Hunter S. Thompson. of your disagreement over that.
6: And it just
4: got me thinking how, of course, any discussion about comics talks about
3: comic books, books,
5: but how important is it to you to use, like, or to draw inspiration or references from other sources, like movies, novels, uh, the news, whatever, know, television, uh, how often you do that. I think Bill and I are the living incarnations besides
2: me that. I do think that there are areas of overlap, and I think there are areas of absolute exclusivity and you know mutual exclusive. I think you're far more into your awareness of guys like Hammond. That's 40 years old. Right. I mean, for me, I'm deeply
1: influenced by musical theater. Usually mm-hmm. so, and I'm very serious about that. Frank Lesser is as much an influence on me as a writer as Alan First
0: or Elmer Leonard.
1: I realized recently how much of an influence Fritz Leiber was me on, on the way on the way I think about humor. But in terms of picture making,
2: I look at everything. You know,
1: I really do.
2: It's amazing what kind of goes in there. You can't turn it off. It's just whatever, you know, whatever you're looking at, whatever you're experiencing, like there's some way that this is going to link in. I was going to ask you, what is this, the oddest reference or influence that if you were to tell them who it is, that people would go like... I never would have heard that. I never would have believed that. I think it's probably Lesser.
1: That's from a book that David
2: gave me about life
1: under the occupation in Paris. I like that stuff. But Lesser
2: would be the answer. Okay.
1: For me, <coughs> Guys and Dolls is as close as, as America's ever gotten to perfect art. I feel the same way about Most Happy Fella and How to Succeed. This Without Really Trying. His sense of the vernacular just kills me. We were discussing doing Black Kiss 3, and I wanted to do it as a parody of musicals. And I realized I, hadn't th- I didn't have an account for that, so I couldn't do it. Because I'm not Larry Siegel. You know for man, but I really wanted to because I want to do literal 10 page long parodies of musicals in filth and do pornographic versions of West Side stories, guys, and all. Seriously, uh, you know, sometimes you just got to come up with something else to do to keep you excited. <laughs> <laughs> what about
2: like someone like Billy Wilder? Yes.
1: Yeah, yeah, you know, for, except for someone like Hot No and Sally 17. Now, you're right, everything.
2: <laughs> uh, I think about it, you know. No, you're
1: right. Yeah. You're right. Because Holden, I mean, like yeah, the yeah. the three archetypes are, you know, William Holden, <coughs> James Garner, and Garner. When well, you were talking, in fact, more than twenty years after the fact, there's a wonderful piece by James Garner reviewing his biography, his autobiography, and he talks about Garner, why Garner didn't become a movie star, and Clint Eastwood and Stephen King did. It's an astonishing piece of work. It really is. I like about James and to a great extent, that Wilde does represent that kind of snarky new American. We tried to watch The Grand Hotel last night, and my wife couldn't bear it. But I'm, I'm watching this, and I'm thinking of Gargoyne and Nachka.
2: What about jazz
1: for you? Uh, it's Lester Young and Charlie Parker, and, and Count Basie of connect and, of course, all Mowgli, the all singer, Eddie
2: Jefferson. Team pleasure. There I go, there I go, there I go, there I go. The reason I'm, I'm kind of curious about Parker, because Parker was all about just... Man. Yeah, exactly. So, same thing with, I'm thinking, I'm blanking on his name. Uh, Coleman? John Coltrane?
1: Cole, Cole, yeah. Uh,
2: Coleman and okay.
1: Coleman. I got my grandson to sing a love supreme with me this weekend. Like, a love Supreme. Come on, Rocky, do it. A love supreme. There's nothing like a nine-year-old kid from Mill Valley, California, singing A Love Supreme with you. It's the best. Him I don't embarrass. That was fun. Yeah. Seven-year-old <laughs> that hey, guy. Two questions. Uh, Bill, when you talked about going up to DC
5: that first time, just what year was that?
2: I think it was nineteen eighty. That late? I think I think it was like maybe been seventy nine or eighty, yeah. I I, I just turned I think it was yeah, June of I think eighty. And what I want to ask both of you is the way you did panels is really unconventional when you compare to when
5: you're talking about Kurt Swan, Murphy Anderson or the Marvel guys, they're just six panels a page, very simple. Were the editors you're dealing with <laughs> when you started to do that? Or was there a pushback on them that they didn't want it? I mean, were there editors that did? Because like, I, feel, I see some of the pages you're doing; they're so great. And then I see, you know, editor-in-chief Jim Schiller, and I'm like, how did that happen? Keeping Jim occupied. The well, <laughs> no,
1: that was that came that came later. <laughs> yeah. Oh my god.
2: Talk about a Hollywood Babylon, comic book Babylon. <laughs> <laughs> That shows up in Violent 3. Yeah. I mean, there were more things. I remember going to Benny Coletta's house in New Jersey. I don't know if, if Nixon was a neighbor at some point, if, if, but he was Vinnie was like, he wanted to be the art director up at Marvel. And, no, he came very close to him. It. it was Mike Hobson. What happened was Benny was going around to all the editors saying, you know, it's like, you're basically screwing over Jim big time. He goes, and when I'm the art director, You're out of here. He was like basically (laughs) threatening everybody. He was like pulling walnuts. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. He was a low level, I think he was like a bookie
1: or something. but, 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 you know, that's exactly the character he played in the office. Right.
2: And the thing is, is that he was so certain that he had the job down that it was actually Hobson at the time who called him and said, You're not getting the job. Marvel cannot be associated with. People such as yourself. <laughs> <That's> right, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, it's like mob kind of thing. You know. the, the pushback you're talking about happens today, not then. Premonies so are much more conservative yeah. than they were. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Shooter was actually, Jim got a lot of crap, a lot of heat. He used to bust my chops all the time, but he was the first person to say, do your thing. Also, one thing that you don't see anymore is if you do a piece of art and they go and they make a lunchbox of it or they go and they, they make us, you know, a hash meal or whatever. Paying for something twice, you know, if you do a cover, it's like and they make a T-shirt out of I it, mean, all of that stuff. Jim would go upstairs to the powers that be and say, "You got to pay the guy again for the job. He's already done it. Like pay him again." And they would. You don't see that at all now. Things have gotten much, much more conservative. Both companies,
1: mostly because neither company has any artists working as editors. I mean, the firing of John Marcharelle two months ago shocked everybody, but it was no surprise to people like that. Because right. I think. The reason that he was fired is because no one knows what an art director does. Comics has become ridiculously a writer alpha media, which is absurd. And there are three main reasons for this. We've had this conversation. The editors themselves have no real understanding of visual narrative. Their criticisms are filtered entirely through the literary screen. And what you've got is three things: a) the nineties when comics were really sensation based without narrative; two, with all due respect, the curiosity and the level of interest of the reader has diminished dramatically. How many grown men and women in this room are spending too much fucking time reading Mountain Jane and Harry Potter novels? And three, I'm sorry, grow up, and, uh, and stop reading that shit. It's children's books. They're called chapter books for kids. And three, it is in the interest of the representation and, and management classes to identify the writer as a creative force of the material and the artist as an unfortunately necessary
6: but unpleasant adjunct to the writer's creative experience. because. Those guys
1: can identify the skill set required to write. They may not be able to write, but they they know what a keyboard looks like. They can sort of get the idea.
6: When it comes to us,
1: we are regarded as shamans. There's a reason why the chief runs the room and the shaman works for the chief. And Gil always said that he felt that he was a wolf being held at bay by a a torch. And I can see what he's talking about. The writer in in comics is the alpha. And the reason that a company like Image is so successful right now is because it's an ID (coughs) factor. I think I'm one of the few guys in Image who who writes and draws his own stuff. I'm in the middle there. Having done both things for a living, I have a genuine distaste for these. Every time I read a deadline, when some writer refers to with the person with whom they collaborate as their artist, like I talk about my lunch. <laughs> you know, the fact of the matter is, comic book writing is not typing. Comic book writing is a collaborative experience between the writer and the an
2: artist. And when you react to the quality of the writing in a comic book, what you're actually reacting to is the execution of the writer's template by the artist. So, shut up, all you guys. <laughs> also, the one other big thing that is part and parcel now is that it really isn't about storytelling; it's about IP. You mm-hmm. know, it's really about you know how can we take this and turn it into a ride, turn it into maybe a movie or something. But it's really not about the comics per se at all.
1: And I rather like comic books. Yeah, I consider myself very lucky in that I left New York the day before I turned thirty-five because I had no prospects. As we discussed. Despite the fact that the prefers me to sorry, I'm a legend. Um, and in that regard, I realized I had to find another income stream because I was going to get this old, and I had no idea I was going to support
6: myself. I did not want to be a trainer on the state. I'm on the, I'm the board of the Hero Initiative, and you have no idea how difficult it is occasionally for me to have to
1: deal with people who treated me with contempt when I was in my 20s and 30s when I come there with their hands out. And I'm a Democrat.
6: We'll name names later. And um, I'm grateful for the fact that I found another
1: income stream. Because I never could have had the life that I live today in comics. Because I'm just I'm not a comics. I'm, I'm an acquired tennis. Had I done what I did on Flag and Times Squared on Batman or Superman, it's potential that would be a bigger name. But I did not want to be able to get away with those things <coughs> on those established characters. You couldn't do that. It not be done. Ned Kahn always gave me shit for not doing Flag for DC Comics. And I said, that's absurd. DC would never have published the book as a it. Because it needed a company without baggage. It needed to be in a place where there was no history whatsoever that it could establish itself alone, existing alongside Superman and Batman would have given it a, a a patina of a specific idea which it lacked and desperately wanted to avoid at that point. Downside of that, of course, is that it became material that influenced a big part of the talent pool but didn't reach the audience. I spent more time than I care to admit explaining to schmucks interviewing me that you might want to do your research before you talk to me next time. No, I didn't get that from
6: him. He got that from me. Now I'm tired of sounding like a bitter old fucking. (laughs) (laughs) Just just saying.
2: The provenance in terms of what comes first. That's the other thing is that I think people tend to forget the linear aspect of it, that there are things that actually happen in a very much a chronological point of way. What you were saying about, um, I'm blanking on what your point was being pushed back from that.
5: Well, yeah, when you started, I assumed there'd be more pushback from. The guys who'd been there since the 40s. But they weren't around anymore. They were gone. By the time I, mean, yeah, no, when, I think. When we talked more mid 70s when there's people like Julie Schwartz and Mark Weinzinger still around.
1: The only guy that Julie wanted to work with was, was Dave Howell. Dave was Julie's favorite artist. He reminded him of Murphy Anderson. We weren't working for those guys. Mm-hmm. Never. We worked for Danny. We worked for Archie. We worked for younger guys.
6: And we could take a shot. Of all people, <clears> Christ <throat> was his name. The awful little Terry.
1: Joe Orlando's in it. He was ah, not Terry. Joe was a genius. <laughs> Those guys never had anything to do with us. We were never first year. I was never first year. I did not realize you're Superman or Batman. When Giordano comes over to DC from Charlton, he brings a Power. He was the perfect guy. Power was the perfect cautionary tale. Milgram spent five years trying to get a Power to come over to work at law. But Power mistook his loyalty for to Giordano for his loyalty for DC. When Giordano was gone.
2: You know, apparel is smoke. Yeah, speaking of apparel, there was a point when, and again, this is part of my issue with comics, that there is no gold watch in the media. You're pretty much on that treadmill, <clears throat> and they pay you just enough to kind of just keep churning it out. So I was actually inking the finishes over Jim Apparel. What's this? In the, 80s, oh, yeah. the, the Batman stuff, yeah. Now oh, they, they must have looked fabulous. Well, what's interesting about it is that they came to me. Who's running? Skates or Dan? I really don't know. But I do know that they want because at that point, he'd been in business for so long, and this is something that happens, you you saw it with Kirby, you saw it with Busema. The stuff starts to skew. It starts to get wonky. They just don't have either the vision, you know, the eyesight anymore, or the enthusiasm. It's like they're just putting stuff out there. These are the people who sort of built the business, built the medium in a lot of ways, who should be treated with a lot more respect. I mean, certainly that's the way I feel about it, but well, give that shit up. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but the point is, when they actually came to me and they said, we want you to do finishes over stuff, and they said, can you fix a lot of what he does? It's kind of wonky. Was it wonky? It was getting kind of wonky, yeah. yeah. A lot of that sort of, yeah, a little bit of a Neil Adams thing yeah. happening, a lot of that went by the wayside. It sort of became this sort of blocky, flattened out kind of thing that you know, was going on. And actually, I, I never met Jim, but we did have a conversation when time. We spent about an hour and a half on the phone talking. And talked about everything. It was really really actually great. The only thing I really do remember about the whole thing was at the end of the conversation, he said, I have a favor to ask you. And I said, you name it. He said, stop fucking with my faces. And I said, okay. And I called up the editor. And I said, pencil is prerogative. It's like, you hired me to fix his drawings, quote, fix. And he wants me to be more respectful of what he's doing. And... Pretty much right after that, there wasn't any more work from him. It was almost like that was the end of the whole thing. Just acknowledging I was going to follow
5: his request.
2: That was it. That was all she wrote. For both or
5: either of you, was there any particular project or turning point that you changed your perspective of
2: yourself as an artist from struggling artist to pro, or that you're most proud of? I can. Put that to bed right now. It's always a struggle. I'm sorry. It's like it just never stops. You know, it just never ends. It's like there's no romance <laughs> at all. For me, it was flagging. Because I realized
1: I had something to say that I could do. I think what he's talking about, and you're always working hard. You end up competing with yourself. For me, the thing about flagging is I set a bar for myself that screwed me. Because like I could never go back.
2: It was a game changer. In fact, is, this is my job.
1: Comic book enthusiasts hate to hear this shit. But the reality is, we get paid to do this, and I get up in the morning. When we started this conversation earlier, I said that one of the separating factors of the generation precedes us like, is that bitterness. I don't think you're a bitter guy. I'm not a bitter guy. I mean, I'm bitter about other things. I'm mostly bitter about, you know, about the fact that I resent other people in money more than anybody else. <laughs> I envy very people's work going I envy. I envy, I'd really like to be making a living, you know, testing at artisanal macaroni and cheese <laughs> and be able to do my, my work on the side, you know. Sure. But I kind of like, I'm a cross-repuzzle guy. I do puzzles. I can't read at night. I have to do puzzles and the narrative gets me worked up. And I do only Thursday through Sunday because the money is a message
5: for poetry. I feel that way about doing comics today. That's how I feel about comics. I feel like comics
1: today have more in common with map making, cartography, and schematics. Finding ways to deliver narrative imagery in ways that is appealing, that has some clarity, but is also obscure and in places. Because my feeling is, there are other people who are there to laugh into the audience, and I'm not here for that. Somebody pointed it out, and I was like, yeah, I'll do stuff that characters do that isn't laid out in the text.
5: Oh, yeah. of guys don't? I know you do.
1: There's so much subtext. It's like Willie yeah. Elder. Yeah. Willie Elder? No? Elder? Well, no? no. Who does not know who Willie Elder? Is? He fucked up his career by spending 25 years doing Laney fame, but before that, he was an astonishing, talented man. He was a, maybe Kurtzman's greatest collaborator. They were best friends. And his humor stuff, it was packed with what he called chicken back. It, it was all this stuff happening in the background that he just added for fun, you know. He was apparently a very eccentric guy. Uh, I met him a couple of times. I made no impression on him because I was young and he didn't give a shit about me. Anecdotally, he was crazy, and that craziness showed up on the page. I mean, he in the middle of the depression when money was tight,
6: he found a package of meat that had fallen off in a busher truck. Rather than bringing it home to feed his
1: family, he stole clothes off a clothesline. And scattered the meat and the clothes along a railroad track and started yelling, Mikey! Mikey!
6: <laughs> <laughs> that's fucking nuts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: That should
1: make
6: it. That's a commitment. You know, that is <laughs> a commitment. <laughs>
2: so. What Ted was saying, I think, all along the way with me, with like with coming in with the Moon Knight, Moon Knight had a very specific, that was my. Cutting my eye you know, so to speak. And with the, they added this routine. Then pushing into the new mutants, I felt like I was trying some stuff with all of the other influences in black and white. And then when I did Electro, that was like I wanted to do painted covers and painted interiors because again, you had done it with the graphic novels, but I wanted to do it in a monthly comic that was actually about a superhero stuff, like doing it in that. I wanted to just write and draw, and tell my own thing, and again. Response I got from the U.S. when Toasters came out here in the states, they'd have these four old ladies. Like it was some magazine that would have like It wasn't quite four stars. It was a unit of four, like four. I'm oh like four, four old ladies. Yeah. I mean, well, it was. I think it, this, it, it was. I, I yeah. It was. Four it old was a, but I got four question marks. But Toasters were reviewed by the London Sunday Times book review, and it was actually this amazingly positive. Like it showed the adult potential of the form. I'm like. I never felt like I, was, like, I was not a superhero writer, but I felt like I loved the idea of complexity and writing stuff and with the same way that I guess that the way I approach my artwork. I feel like my words are probably about as much as fully compatible with that. It's like, as far as writing a monthly superhero thing, I don't think I could do that. And I'm in awe of someone who can. Again, referring to
1: this essay, which I'll be posting, probably the medium, but the journal is probably going to publish it as well. I have no interest whatsoever in superhero comic books as a reader. I haven't in years, I
6: find them adolescent and insipid. and I don't care whether you like them or not, you're welcome to really like them. But I am genuinely in awe of anyone who can find anything new to say about this shit. Because it is just, it's 80 years of this junk. It boils down
1: to, as I said, the Roadrunner Coyote. It's Batman chasing the Joker, they never catching him, Superman, Luther, Batman, Green goblin just endless, you know. I'm sitting on an airplane, and I'm watching the Everybody Dies movie, but not really, you know, uh, over a guy's shoulder. And I'm realizing that this paradigm kind of, of comics That there's no consequences, there's no real context of consequences. And that I can't participate in that as a professional and take it seriously. But I am stunned at anyone who can step up to the plate and say, I'm going to write Superman for the next couple of years. But thanks your viewpoint, we get comics like Twilight. Yeah, maybe. But John <laughs> Byrne also said that I had raped an entire aspect of the DC universe. What? Word, man! <laughs>
4: That's <laughs> my favorite thing <laughs> Really?
1: Why JGL step well, yeah, he's pretty gorgeous, man. Oh, oh, oh. And the comics were aristocracy. Yeah, he would have to be taking. Which was
5: dialogue, actually. I don't mean to derail the whole thing, but the way you wrote, the way they spoke, every character there had their own unique voice. That's
6: that's. What I'm <laughs>
5: <laughs>
1: <laughs> Thank you, comic books, but that's the reality. I mean, comic books have conditioned you people to read shit
6: <laughs>
1: because because it flatters you for liking it. It's like television used to be. Television used to be a medium that congratulated you for being too hip for television. And as soon as you had you convinced of that, you had you by the ball. And mainstream comic books are fatuous and credulous and depend on your fatuousness and your credulity. They depend on you still loving the shit you love when you were 13. They depend on you being willing to accept the creations of 15-year-old boys aimed at not quite so talented and skilled 15-year-old boys with a slather of gravitas. Make you feel like you're reading an adult product. The guy dresses up like a bondage freak, beating the shit out of people he doesn't know in the middle of the night. He had a bad day when he was eight. Okay? The guy has power beyond a mortal man, okay? And he comes down and is nice.
4: Really? Come on.
1: What do you think would really happen if he came down here? He wouldn't wear that red cape? No, no, no. Anecdotally, back when... Jeanette was in DC, but they wanted to be the rookie superhero, the main characters. Alan, Frank, and I were asked to come in and pitch Superman. Alan was going to do the Adventures of Superman, Frank was going to do action, and I was going to do the third book, And I pitched my version of Superman. You want to hear
6: my pitch? Yes. <laughs> okay. You okay? Yeah, right. absolutely.
1: <laughs> Basically, it's the first three pages a of the series, multi-panel pages, as Metropolis awakens. The alarm clocks go off, everybody's waking up in Metropolis. The city's beginning, it's just, you set the city, every It's not New York, it's Chicago. Metropolis in my head is Chicago, no matter what you think. Because that's the city that, that seagull and truth would And the bus is moving, that everybody's within. And then you, you have like four or five pages of these multiple. And then all of a sudden, everybody looks up on a nine-panel page, as you begin to hear, speaking of professor, you've got the cool, clear eyes of a seeker of wisdom and truth. Slightly off-kid. And as you turn the page, there's Superman flying across the <laughs> metropolis. And he's singing along. To how does he see the business without He flies to the Daily Planet. He gets into the Daily Planet, to the, to the storage closet, dresses up, and then we realize as he interacts with Lois and Jimmy and Perry and everybody else. <laughs> Everybody in the Tropolis knows that Clark Kent is Superman. <laughs> but They're not going to let him know, they know. <laughs> because they really like the idea of
6: having Superman in the Tropolis. <laughs> Needless
1: to say, I was shunted out of the room. <laughs> <laughs> See, that's Superman I can dig. Alright, it's Superman by Tom DeHaven. Who's read it? Not I, a bought fly it. Fly I bought ball. it
5: because of you, but I haven't read it. <laughs>
6: oh.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Who's bought it and read it? <laughs> I read it. Made me cry halfway across the country. Because it brought back to me what it was about superhero comic books that I loved when I was 12 years old. Okay, <laughs> okay? I called Tom DeHave when I got home and I said, if anybody adapts this thing, I'd kill to be that guy You know who would do a great job on that? Chris Sammy. He would do a fabulous job. But all that romance has been sucked out of superhero comic books by the need to make it relevant and adult. It should be morally idiotic at its core. It's what made that stuff so perfect and beautiful when we were kids. Instead, you've got adult problems with like the guys who are running around dressed in super suits. I'm sorry. Stop.
4: Yes. But is that a flaw? Yes. of... Yes. Sorry. I need to be I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. Hey, hey, hey. No. Go ahead. Please go ahead. Um, is that a flaw? What you just said is that a flaw of the genre itself? Just Yes. I think it is. Or is it a function of the current editorial? No, I think it is a function
1: of the material itself. I really do. I think that the very nature of adolescent satisfaction fantasies, which is what we're talking about here. First of all, for the most part, these characters are projections of the 15-year-old boy's idea of adulthood. Grown men and women, when confronted with the idea of dressing like that in public, do not behave that way. They have shame. They have a sense of self. They have a sense of awareness. A 15 year old boy's idea of how an adult behaves is how these characters behave. I do comic books because of superhero comics. That's all I really wanted to do. I love this stuff so much. Baby in my head is drawn by Dick Sprang. (laughs) And Superman in my head is drawn by Jack Burnley. And it's not a realistic guy, it's a cartoon. I can watch the Fleischer cartoons now with my grandsons and still get goose pimples and go berserk.
6: From the endless reaches of space, where they once float a planet on a script on, they burn like a glowing star in the distance.
1: I can get almost all of that. IAB, IAP, IS, which is the initials for look, it's a bird to playing the Superman. How pathetic is that?
6: <laughs> okay?
1: So, this is not contempt prior to investigation. This is contempt with investigation. This is, of an investigation. Okay. this is me calling out, wishing to God, the God I don't believe in, right? that there was more to genre material than just these guys running around in masks and caves fighting crime for no particular reason. David, hey, you've got a finger up in the air. You got
4: a so, it leads to my next question. Wishes. Do you guys follow European comics and the stuff that they're printing and have you been approached by them to be able to do original some material? Yeah, I, I'm a big fan of, of European stuff. And I'm actually having some discussions
2: about doing some stuff here. But what you're bringing up is sort of what I want to get to with, with, with you and I want to hear your answer as well. But by the way, this, sorry for the screen. No, but... it actually begs the question because there's the, the medium of comics. Because I still love this medium and what it's capable of. But you reminded me of, like, I think a number of people here have heard about the whole Bill Maher thing. Have you heard oh, about yeah. it yet? Oh, oh, yeah, all okay. right. <laughs> so I was going to say that he got. No, no he, but he wasn't talking about
1: comic books. No. He wasn't talking about comic books at all. He was talking about the movies. Right. He is no <laughs> the one He barely knows comic books exist. Okay, well, I mean. Comic book I mean, movies have taken over the world. I mean, let, let's face it. Here's the only genius in comics today is Kevin Feige. Kevin Feige has taken in 10 years' time has monetized to the tune of billions. Material based on source material that ninety nine point ninety nine percent of the people buying those tickets have any idea exists, and if they do, they couldn't give a fuck. They just don't give a damn. The comic book movie is the engine that Bill Maher was talking about. I doubt he has even the conscious awareness of the existence of the product we're talking about. There are only quarter million people of us in the United States. That's right. When John Cassaday's and Jason Aaron's Star Wars number 1 came out, I had lunch with Bob Wayne that day, and Bob was one of my oldest friends, and that was the first topic of news. And, and, and before either of us, it was like one of those Ted Coke moments, He said, so four copies each of what? And yeah, that's what it's all about. He wasn't talking about the comics.
7: He has no comics.
1: First of all, getting
2: worked up about Bill Maher's No, no, no. no. Man, I, 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 I totally agree with you, but if you follow any of on social, you saw how much of a um, Because they're, the they're feeling surge. They're cherishing
1: was being assaulted, and you know when would anybody else think of what you like mean shit to you? I get up every morning and I say to myself, reminding myself that what you think of me is none of my business. And it's really difficult, but it's really good. Uh, you know, do you need, feel the need to defend your taste to some guy on TV? Start
3: questioning your tastes. Fuck him. Who cares what he you thinks? You know, Christ, for God's sake! All those, again, all is Christ for God's sake. Who cares? I love TV, and I like a lot of stuff, but I don't think it's any good because I like it. You know, I like pizza. I great pizza
1: at lunch. I did It's not good. It's pizza. <laughs> you know, European comics. But the problem with European comics is that for the most part, they lack the energy of the better genre material of American comics. The best European comics have a state look. Taconi, okay? Giardino, okay? Oh, yeah. Giardino. Giardino is what Mobius would have been like if he went to work for Gergé instead of Gigi. Oh my
5: right? Right? Am I
1: right? Think about it. Yes, yes, no. You know Vittorio Giardino? Giardino is astonishing. His work is stayed. His range of character is unfucking believable. There's no tapes and shit in this. And it's rather stayed and quiet, but it is ripe with character and ripe with drama. Fernando Taconi, you know? Tacconi's the closest to American. That's because he was working for Fleetwood. But most of the European stuff is really badly written. The writing is terrible. It's worse than ours, we suck. <laughs> okay? And that is an issue. And I hate translating stuff anyway. You know, that girl with the spider tattoo? How many times do you to get on a roadway
4: a truck? You. Could you elaborate a little bit more about what you talked about by the subjective experience or encounter that the audience should have in confronting a page of, of art? Yeah,
5: you well, I mean, I can't A character literally
1: looking out of the page and looking at you, acknowledging your existence. It's the antithesis, I mean, in a movie that doesn't work. Breaking the fourth wall is a terrible idea. And I'm not talking about Deadpool and tacos and all the chimichangas bullshit. (laughs) I'm talking more about, literally, the character identifying your presence. Not looking off to the side, but identifying you as a part of the experience. It's like a close-up on a page. (laughs) has several functions, deeper sense of detail on what this character looks like. It's also there to tell you how that character feels and how you should feel about what that character is experiencing. And that's heightened when that character makes eye contact with you. Does that make sense?
7: Are you talking about situations where the are speaking to the audience? I'm not speaking to the it's audience, but, the but
1: staying in such a way that the character is looking out at yeah. you, okay. not looking off to the side, not being oblique, but engaging. You're talking about the character is still
3: engaged with the people within the, with
1: the, the studio. Yes, but it's visually, yes, yes. This book I mentioned earlier, there was nothing but middle distance shots. Everything was brown. All the characters look alike. There was no physical connection. There's no behavior of their bodies. Okay? I talk with my hands. We're both active people. We both represent a tradition of paying attention to I mean, I spend enormous parts of my life watching people I eat alone frequently. And I watch people while they're behaving. And I love this stuff because it gives me character moments and character business. I'm looking at this room full of people. Some of you were thinking, some of you were like looking like <laughs> and it's, it's fun for me is my pleasure to run. And that relationship between the text and, and, and the reader Can never be overestimated it's Important So there's a life beyond the page Yes, exactly That you're made a participant in the material You know, when it happens in a movie I mean, have you ever seen The Lady in the Lake with Robert Montgomery playing uh, Philip Marlowe? It's terrible It's a film shot completely subjective Okay, the camera is Philip Marlowe It is awful It completely wastes a wonderful actor in Robert Montgomery the female is the best name ever. Her name is Audrey Totter. Great name for Nancy. But that subjectivity works really beautifully in comics. Jack, do you have something?
5: Yes. I read all your stuff, both of you, in the 80s and everything. And I got through, reached the end of the decade. I was reading, you know, more mature, there's all this great stuff going on. And I was, you know, out of work, like, it's won't stop doing superheroes. I was thrilled. I was like, great, I'll go with that and then everything in the 90s, it was like everybody doubled down on superheroes. And the only thing, the only kind of things that uh, interested me, because I still wanted to read genre material, DC would do the Elseworld books. So I'd pick up stuff like Thrill Killer, that kind of thing. Always wishing, I was like, man, I wish I could read this without the Batman stuff in it, because I liked it, but I just didn't. Sometimes you start taking the job you get. No, I understand. Don't you ever feel that? Do you
1: ever feel that you, that sometimes you just gotta do the job to pay the mortgage? Oh,
5: yeah, yeah. Those are, yeah. No, I oh, yeah. I, I don't feel plain. I have a lost suspicion today. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I love all of that stuff, but at the same time, it'd be nice to have pirate stories without fucking Superman or whatever. I remember expecting that there was gonna be stuff like the book that you had planned at one time, April in Paris. Right. Set in Paris. Set in Dennis Crown. Oh, I
1: thought you were. No, no, Dennis and I talked about it in someone. Why is he here? I don't
4: know. I'm sorry. I just called Dennis Cowan a fuck. You answered a lot of my questions, a couple of answers already. Your growing hatred of some of the creators and you
1: know, you said your Mrs. Girl. Oh, it's getting bigger. Your yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're
4: not on it, so it's okay. I, I appreciate that. you know not going in. Yeah, yeah. I find, and I don't know if you agree, that a lot of it, for me, and why I don't love a lot of comics anymore, is because it went from a storytelling kind of genre to people who now want to draw a bunch of cool pictures. Like, I grew up learning about storytelling and hopefully drawing it in an in, interesting way. In, in, in. And I feel that a lot of people now have grown up looking at artists who they thought their work looked cool and they tried to emulate them and they forgot the storytelling aspect of what they were doing. Would you agree with, with that? But then you get a guy to you know what what say, the the you. Absolutely. I'm not
1: saying Here's a guy. I'm talking about your list. Most of my list is not personal. Not, it's, it's all personal, not professional. <laughs> I dislike a lot of people in personal list. But I'm, even, I'm so dislikable, it's okay. You know <laughs> I mean, I'm not walking the park. <laughs> <and I know laughs> it. I Bill is a much nicer person than I am. <laughs> I he, tough, know, he really is. Sure. Huh? <laughs> not a tough job. <laughs> One of the easiest jobs he's ever going to do. It goes back, I think, to the fact that the economic market has shrunk so much and people tend to. I think it's an easily flattered audience, you know, and I think the audience really engages in that flattery. I think one of the almost prerequisites for success is the sharing of the zeitgeist. It's a belief system that crosses over from the country. I think there are artists who are extremely popular because they represent what the audience would do if it could. It's kind of like the actual lowes syndrome, actual is <laughs> a successful musical figure because I think he was a guy who was like a, a blue collar idea that, that the audience felt could identify with and become and that talent is often very much the guy that in comics that, that succeeds. I won't name names.
2: He knows who we're talking about.
4: I just wonder, uh, like, if some people are trying to be stars as, as <clears the throat> well. define
2: what you mean by just putting pictures or cool pictures,
4: or don't name names. <laughs> I, I, I anyway, but just drawing a bunch of shit on the page that you know excites the artist and not part of the story. But again, you're also. You were saying anyway, like talking about trying to sell <laughs> things as opposed to telling stories.
1: In the course of this interview that Groff did with Ben Saunders, they were talking in Great Land about Kriegstein. And Kriegstein is one of those guys that every young fan hates. And if you grow up, and if, if you develop eyes and a head, you realize how brilliant the work is. It's very cold, it's very impersonal, it's very detached. But in its own way, it shares that, that detachment with Kurtzman. Mm. And Kriegstein historically hated Splash. He just did. If you look at the best stuff he did, he was clearly getting away with not doing splash. And I also have learned to hate splash. I like starting my stories right in the middle. I'll do a splash page. I just did a, a job for Marvel last month, I'll a war story that I had to do a splash because it just it's a Marvel job, it's a straight up job. But I'm not a good draftsman on my own. I'm not a good writer on my own. The two things come together and create a synergy of skill set. And that's what it's about for me. I mentioned this to Bill at dinner. My stuff works, but it's all together. That's one of the reasons why I believe there is a vocabulary. There is a syntax to what we do. There's a structure, structured narrative that there are books that are not served by the artist. As much antipathy as I have for the writer, I'm also in, in situations, frequently find myself, where the artist does not step up with a plate to provide motif. I won't name names because I, I like the guy personally. But there's a book that came out from D.C. last year that was just right for motif cleverly written, smartly written, and the artist just dropped the ball on finding all the elements that supported his character and really giving it, after the fact, I'll be well-talking, right? But the problem is that most people who get into comic books don't care about reading or writing anymore. They care about drawing cool shit. But if they get school, look,
6: I come back out of apprenticeship. I had a shit academy by Bill King, by Gray Morrow, by Wallace Wood,
1: by Neil Adams to a certain extent. And I learned how to do my craft by watching and listening to other guys. Okay. And I've always had assistance. You know, because my feeling is, I can't pay those guys. They're going to pass it on. Okay. And I taught myself how to be as good as I am. I started shitting. And I got good. And my commitment to everybody I've ever hired is that I will get you to do better work for me than you do for yourself. Because I'm hard-run using 11 because you're a lazy-ass motherfucker. And I'm lazy, by nature. But I've taught myself not to be. But a lot of it has to do with beyond instinct in looking at information, recognizing that pictures can't have narrative value. and the craziest shit he's ever done, there's still narrative value. That show Legion owes a shitload to him. Not visually, but textually. Because yeah. Bill's depiction of the lunacy of superheroes, and see, for me, it's the New Mutants. It's really coarse. It's really coarse. And it's just like crazy-ass shit. And it has enormous emotional content.
6: The electric
5: stuff is more defective.
2: There is a little bit more of a of removal and a little bit more of a throwing everything at the agriculture literally, as I recall. Yeah, me, literally, you know. One thing was trying to find a way to encapture, you know, encapsulate different mindsets that were actually of the characters through emotion and through abstraction and through basically deviating from a very sort of standard point of view in terms of a style. It's like Zigzagging. It's almost like a Rorschach test to get to what's underneath the character. And that's where I, I certainly believe that, like, again, I think power to feel the same way. It's like presuming a level of intellect on the part of the reader. Right. It's like they're not idiots. Yeah. So the idea of, like, for me, like, one of the things when you talk about pretty pictures, it struck my nerve with me because I'm thinking about all the stuff I'm working on right now with Prudential White. And I'm doing a lot of single page images. And a lot of them are sort of set up. Done. I know they're going to be in there somewhere. I don't know exactly how I'm going to place them or where they're going to be. But each one of them has to have a narrative point of view. And the same thing with motifs. And I feel like that's also part and parcel of what an artist has to bring to It's a sense of, again, motif is perfect to perfect. <coughs> Something that will be, again, even musically. Listen to music, the Morricone stuff for West, part of time in the West. Each one of the characters has a light motif. It's like you know that when they play this stuff. It's harmonica. It's like you bring those elements in visually. And what that does is it sits in the reader's back of their brain. And if a writer is actually smart, they'll take those visual motifs and it becomes more than words, more than pictures, it becomes (coughs) the synthesis of the two.
6: Brian
1: Azzarello and Eduardo Ruiz. Sure, absolutely. This work looks like it's the work of one person. Okay. If Brian has any self-awareness, you
4: should
1: be
4: lighting a candle with Pitt every month. What I'm saying is that you get that. Is that why your list is growing? Because no, no, my list
1: is all
6: personal. I hate it. No, I mean, my thing, I
4: don't
1: care. I, I really don't care about other
4: people's work. I, I mean, think it's fast, with my lack of interest in a lot of this coming out now oh, no, me it's all personal. is that it's <laughs> just about, it seems as if it should, the artists are going, hey, I want this to be a cool t shirt as opposed to what story are you are trying to tell in I
2: agree with that. I, I could give a shit. they make a fucking t-shirt, you know? Right. It's like, it's got to have a reason. And, and I've also found this out in terms of, say, painted images. Single painted images are meant to be portal. Images where there's just and an economy of words and pictures. Anything can be done with digital coloring or whatever. But the narrative aspect of it is that the old classic thing of it's important what goes on between the panels, what's in between the, the gutter there, as opposed to what's happening in the panels. So you can actually have staccato, 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 movement, 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 telling the story, turn the page, double page spread, something that where people will land on it, and you want them to just slow down and take it in. It's an orchestral aspect to it. You're in control of all of that in terms of how much time someone should spend on a paper <laughs> page. Look, there are three schools
1: of storytelling in comics. Eisenman invents everything. Whatever the space I have for him personally, and he is on I despise him. Just an awful way. He invented everything. When Jack Kirby's working in the 1940s, he's doing it. And I didn't know this at the time, because I only looked at DC Comics from the full Golden Age. Marvel's first started I don't know how good the quality stuff was and how much of what Eisenberg was doing there is isn't until Kirsten comes along in the early 50s on EC that the interest is an entirely different way of thinking about narrative. That thinking is to literally step back from Eisner's melodrama and romance to a kind of an almost detached, like a dead gaze, is, is what he's doing there. Everybody else in EC is doing Eisner. The science fiction books, the horror books, they're all doing Eisner. Okay? And then, due to solely economic reasons, this is the third element that develops, and that's Kirby did because if you look at Jack's stuff, if you look at Marvel over the first five, six years of the company, when Jack makes stand, Jack ceases to be an action artist, becomes an impact artist. The stuff starts moving. The pictures become about the impact as opposed to getting there.
3: All that in betweening element, the challenge of the unknown on the airplane, changing costume, that vanishes. And what
1: you've got now is writers seeking to achieve that Kirby Lee effect with Eisner technique. That's what's going on. That's why you get guys writing a 12-panel page for Jim Frank Cho. What the fuck you do giving Frank Show 12 panels of page? <laughs> I mean, you can do that with Chris Samney. you can do it with David Aha. But Frank, Frank is a deliberately illustrative talent. You need to have air and space. And there's nothing there. It's a complete misalliance between the two talents, the two skill sets. And the problem is, artists collude in allowing the writer to be the alpha by behaving like amateur dicks. They don't deliver, they don't do what they say they're gonna do, they fuck around, they think that a month has six weeks,
6: you know?
1: I mean, come on. It's that hobbyist sensibility. Cause like you got a lot of guys who came into comics today, who came into comics because of the 90s. And again, those books were elaborate, sensory experiences, utterly bereft of narrative. So you've got a really capacity for reading just it diminishes, it just keeps going down. Yeah. Next! You out here? I'm here. Right, drive safe, you don't do anything stupid. Don't kill anybody, alright? See you soon. Am I going to see you on Wednesday or Thursday? Ah, shit, who knows? Peter <laughs> <laughs> Boyer, ladies and gentlemen, Peter Boyer. Hey, Alex, uh, I, how are
4: you? I spent a summer at an intern at Marvel, and I was in Spider Man's
3: At that time, there was some hot, hot Spider Man's office there. I know you! And, you know, at the
4: end of the day, on every page, he turn his to one mix, you don't because he knows he will sell more on your digital the artists, art. The money shot. And i already argue that this. It doesn't say that's what you're we with the comic page. All those artists, you just draw, <clears throat> spot pages and spot pages, just so you sell, you sell your money on the digital art. You're saying it's literally a confederacy of hoars. <laughs> okay. okay. <laughs> I
6: don't want
4: to
1: do pages at all. I do my figures and backgrounds on separate sheets and combine them in Photoshop. <laughs> so I completely really sacrifice the existence of the page. That's
3: the original thing. You don't know
1: deal
4: Apple it. Yeah.
3: Right. It's not
1: exactly. yeah. I just sent in two cons for uh, Archie versus Predator 2. why they call me Archie
5: versus Predator. 2. <laughs> <You're looking
0: well laughs>
1: enough
5: I I want I wanted like to make
2: sure that I heard that. That's why I can I
1: make know. up better than this. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I'm fascinated by the Archie phenomenon. And they'll try anything once, you know. So I think what you're talking about is a mindset about the material that really derives from fanzines and the fan culture. When I grew up, I grew up in New York City, I grew up in Brooklyn, and in those days there was no fan presence in New York City, it was all in the Midwest. It was Bill Joe White, there was Roy Thomas, these guys in places that had really hard winters. Yeah? I'm serious, that's where comics were read, you didn't read comics, you lived in California. I mean, Spicer and Benson were very strange outliers in that regard comics found their fandom in cold weather climates. That's because we are indoors. When I, mean, I had breakfast every day with, with that guy who's left, and he's never read a comic book in his life. You know? He's here because he wanted to meet Bill. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I'm serious. He doesn't give a shit about my work. The influence
6: of, of fan culture on comic books cannot be you know, overstated. You know, Stan opened the doors to this after the EC stuff had sort of set up the fan addicts. And Stan really played to the gallery. And the gallery believed it. The concept of,
1: of fan proprietorship these days is really disturbing to me. You know, the fact that the, that the audience thinks it has a right to affect the material as it, as it exists. But that sensibility, that those splash panel pages, comes directly from them. It's a fan-pleasing thing. And I give a shit. I think
2: it's assuming it, it's believing that art is a democracy. It's like, you know, <laughs> yeah. it's like, it isn't,
1: right? I, uh, yeah, yeah. I told you about that guy, I, I was on a panel back in the days when a miniseries for a new idea. And some guy got up and said he didn't like series because he couldn't write an effective way to end it. I said, wow. And, and I think that's why I don't like video games. I want to be told the story as opposed to be part of it. I don't need to participate. And I tried virtual reality once and you know I
2: should say. Speaking of technology, what are your thoughts on motion topics? Like, look, one of the things that, that we've all seen is the, like the splash page, you turn the page. You can actually create that on, on a screen where you literally get like a jump scare. It's, it obviates every part of my skill said that I'm correct. Okay. I, no, no, I mean, I'm curious. About I mean, it really, uh, because basically digital
1: comics <laughs> is what we like. And I really like the idea. Even though I'm not doing a full page, I'm still fit, I'm delivering a full page. And for me, you know, you talk about a single image. For me, the page is unto itself a single image. Oh, I totally it, the, agree. The, yeah. the panel itself is a microcosm of the page. It all comes together. And that's what it's about. The digital comics, obviate that existence. I like the idea. I mean, the first time I saw an iPad, I was on the line at LAX go to JFK. There's a cat behind me reading a Romita Spiderman comic book on an arcade. I said, holy oh, fuck, that's it. That's the next delivery session. As I always thought it was going to be a pistol. 25 years ago, I was a speaker at the lunch. I was the entertainment speaker at the LA County Bar Association meeting on IPA. And I assumed that the future of our business was an epistolary form, that we would deliver directly to our audience. The internet really wasn't an idea yet. Do you remember know Gene Lee's jazz letter? No. Um, Gene Lee's the guy who wrote the lyrics the girlfriend of Nima. He introduced Sam Gatz to Pastor Joberto and Jobeem. He moved down the street from Surgeon. Oh, okay. They hated right? oh yeah, yeah, yeah.
6: was great. And good. Gene Lee's, he edited down B for
1: years, and he us on the jazz letter, and I said, that's the mob." that I would do eight pages to ten pages a month and just deliver it to my audience, being like mail-in. Not, of course, being the fabulous internet. But the companies have taken over the idea of that corporate digital. And I don't know, I like technology. You know, I still have my my,
2: chaos, my yeah. And it's clean down, because I scrub. So I knew I'd be you. <laughs> <laughs> and I'd be ashamed. shame. I like the combining of, of hard copy with technology. I really do. You still work dirty, don't you? Yeah, there was a period about a year where I worked nothing but digital. Really? But yeah. I thought I wanted to get my hands dirty ever again. And then after a year, I thought I thought i need to get my hands dirty right. again. I need to fight something, you know. Because there's an antiseptic quality. It's like driving a really big car. It's like you hit something with the fender. It's like tapping it's Detroit, you know. It's like you know. It's like there's nothing intimate about it. It's like I want to like fight fuck up. I want it to be a spectacular. fuck up. A couple weeks back,
1: somebody points out on Facebook, "How do you do this?" And I look at this as quite cell thing with bit resisting." And Ham and I did a, an entire back and forth thing of where we got it from. I thought it was Woody. And it was Vicente Alcazar, you know? Okay. Remember Vicente? San- yeah, 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 sure, absolutely, yeah. Where you take a piece of cellophane. In our case, it was a pack of cigarettes. You were a smoker at one point, weren't right? you? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's been
6: like
5: 40
1: years from me. Yeah, 26 for me. Take a cellophane off the pack of cigarettes, take a wet brush, and run it across it. And it would resist. And it was the flying clods of Earth from a horse's hoofs, It was part of an explosion. It was just like a really cool technique. And I'm realizing
6: people have forgotten this shit. Yeah. They don't know how to make an explosion with an exacto knife
1: and ink. Russ Heath refused to use paint to do a starfield. He would prick it out with an exacto knife. And then just to show off, he would run his hand over and, look at him and push him back. <laughs> Russ didn't get out a lot. Russ, Russ got out of plenty. Those of us who know Russ Heath,
5: he got out of great, <laughs> with The you spatter. Oh, yeah. I
6: mean,
1: look, I mean, showing that to my grandson was like, some other way I can fuck up my
6: parents' house.
5: <laughs> Someone else, come on. Jack, what do you got? Yeah, you apprenticed with four artists. How did you know when it was, you know, when, when they fired him? Okay. Oh, when they fired him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did anyone else in your generation also apprentice?
1: Rusty, Ralph Reese, Larry Hama, Alan Copperberg, Steve Mitchell, Klaus Jansen. Klaus was dick's background man. For years. We all did. Because that was how you learn. Learned. That aspect of our field has vanished and disappeared to its detriment. It died
7: in the 90s because personal computers needed the ability to make a four-color separation in your home garage. So you had roll money coming into the field. You had technical separation. No That's the thing I haven't heard you guys talk about that really intrigued me. Is we had that triangle in the 90s where apprenticeship went away. Because suddenly everybody had a personal computer that could create the separations that were the barrier to anybody at home doing their own four-color printing. They could do black and white printing, but they couldn't go to Ronald's because they couldn't make the separations. So the PCs, letting them do the separations at home, the rock and roll money coming in because that was the first wave of people coming through San Diego doling out option money. So suddenly people were looking, not just doing their comic, but looking at the second paycheck of the option. And the third thing was apprenticeship went away because the field widened so much. There were so many people out after Image came in and all that, and you had Image and Dark Horse and everybody. It got so wide. We no longer had, we no longer hired the people who'd gone through apprenticeship and learned their craft. We hired the 17-year-old who would show up because since that money, the video game money came into the field, the guys who were working stopped working. They'd keep the same income, but they'd work and play video games, so their output dropped like crazy. So we had to churn through and find anybody who could make some semblance of an image to hire to put out monthly comics. So that was the big turning point for me.
1: And I never knew any of this because I was doing television for a living at the time. I got to see comics in the 90s from the remote. And I was at fall But after
7: apprenticeship stopped, <coughs> Except "Now they're coming back into vogue because the sort of bespoke style of doing art for art's
1: sake." Well, I mean, in I mean, '81, I buttonholed Milton Caniff and Mel uh, Sickle. They were guests of honor at the San Diego convention. I spent an hour with them. And I asked them how to use an assistant. what they work as assistants and use them. And they confirmed a lot of my suspicions. I've always had guys working in the house because, frankly, this shit I don't feel like doing. <laughs> Sorry, I've done that before. I'm not going to do that anymore. It's
7: like you the it up,
1: making my I'm it. Nobody touches the figures much. Yeah. I mean, it's like I spread it around. You know, I've got an IT guy in my house, and I have a background. My background guy is like I beat him up for years. <laughs> and I showed him Taconi, and I showed him Sickles. You could see a light go on behind his He's unbelievable. He's an ex banger. He's tattooed from here like his entire shirt. One of the mellowest guys I've ever known, and is incredibly good. If he's ambitious, I'm fine. You know? <laughs> so there you go. I learned my craft penciling for Woody and for Gray. I ghosted a lot of stuff for Gray. The difference is that I never talked about it until he was dead. That's the job. You keep your mouth shut. You don't spread it around. I did commercial work for Neil. I never did any drawing for Neil because I wasn't good enough. And he was embarrassed to send me to go to work to the offices. I looked like every kid did in 1969. I had hair down on my shoulders, belt on jeans, and a work shirt. And you know, this is a guy who woke up in the morning wearing an him. <laughs> he actually would show up. He would walk out of his room in an Astrakhan robe. No, wherever he was, gay. He was not gay. He only met his first wife, his second wife, on his first time.
6: Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I seen the pictures. How long did the first marriage? I
2: think it lasted. I think about ten years. Maybe more than that. I met one of his wives, Elaine. You, you mean, never like, met hand, did you?
1: I've always felt incredibly sorry for her. She sure, looked incredibly miserable. Oh, God. I couldn't agree more. Yeah. <laughs> it was like, I just
2: felt
1: like, wow. My second wife and I, we socialized, with them a great deal. Bill had no palate. He ate like a child. Um, I'm quite serious. He he, went, he spent three weeks in Paris, once and ate omelets every meal, because he was afraid the host would trick him into eating rabbit. <laughs> <laughs> and he ate like a child. He would butterfly it like a rib life it's like, why are you doing that? Just, that's a terrible thing to do to me. We ended up eating a place in Germantown, New in York, called The Climate Indoor which, of course, is long gone. German time is gone now. Of course, it's your film now. And I invited them there. I said, Gil, you'll love it. They planned the Holocaust week <laughs> What? Jews can say that. It's okay. You know. <laughs> and the evenings would consist of me, my then-wife, who was the smartest woman I've ever known, and Gil, in spirit of discussion, and Elaine literally,
5: there's something like that. that it's is terrible. That's kind of how I remember. Yeah. 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 Sad. So. Yes, you. We'll
1: look like Oscar Isaacs from a distance. I'm uh, not. He's not Oscar Isaacs, so I didn't
3: know. Thank you both so much for doing this. You both are huge figures in my comic book and art life. Shadow number one was one of the first books that I actually really, really wanted to go buy. And I dragged my mom across the valley. were you? Oh gosh, I think I was 14? Okay, fuck it then. Sorry. I dragged my mom across the valley to Golden Apple in Northridge to buy it. I have to apologize? Because when I bought the Daredevil graphic novel, I was really pissed off that Frank Miller didn't do this.
6: <laughs> you come to your senses, I'm Yes, yes. <laughs> I,
3: I find it, whether it's a simple line drawing or it's a spectacular painting, I find it mesmerizing that you do what you do. And it's shocking to hear that it's always a struggle for you. Or that there might not be some satisfaction. It could be the simplest line or the most detailed piece, everything you do, everything you post is just shocking that you've done it again. I was just wondering what about processes, why this
2: happened. Well, I, I appreciate that. I, maybe I should be a little more clear. Uh, there are certain facility that comes. I mean, I've done this ever since I was a little kid. The thing is, is that there are certain things I can actually do relatively quickly. There are pieces I've done where I'm really happy with how they come out. It's at a certain point, it's almost like the very minimum I'd expect is to be professional. You know, it's like in some pieces kind of we'll go a little bit beyond that. At the very least, it's got to be at a certain level. Some pieces kind of transcend that. And I feel like I've hit a certain place that I'm really happy about. But what never really does get any easier is how to figure out. The context in which it's going to be, it's not just about doing the pretty piece for the sake of doing the pretty piece. Again, it does have to find, you know, fall into a narrative place. For me, the ultimate calling is comics. It's like, I feel like what Howard said about like doing, you know, illustration in a magazine or doing movie posters, stuff like that. I always loved the idea of being able to do that. But at the end of the day, What really feels like it's in my DNA is comics. It's narrative. It's telling a story. All of that other stuff is sort of at the service of that. So I might feel like I've nailed a piece and I just knocked the piece out of the park visually and be happy with it. But I also feel that it has to, in some way, it's almost like there are times when I've actually felt it's more than than this segment of time that I'm conveying it's like it's throwing way too much stuff. I, a lot of stuff I look back at now with the lecture or whatever, there are times I look at it and I feel like I did more than was actually really called for. It's like you being a bass player. You go in and just like do a, you know, a guitar riff like Eddie Van Halen and just like drive everybody crazy with all the fret work. Or you can do what's necessary. You can do the job. It's that restraint. You know, it's like listening to singers who can't hit the same high notes that they could in terms of the acrobatics they compensate for it in other ways. So for me, one of the things that I'm, I'm more intrigued by now is developing a backlog of technique and things where I can kind of do all the stuff, but at the same time, it's almost like, well, just because I can, it's like, how do I work smarter, not harder? It's that kind of a thing. I don't know if you go through any of that.
1: My work is more spade and straight. And I've stepped away from doing more essentially, mostly because I feel like I'm best served by keeping it simple. That said, I'm working on the third volume of times squared right now, which is a very difficult process for me because I'm going back and doing things that I haven't done in four years. And having to remember to overwrite, to create panels that have a nervous energy that aren't necessarily as deliberately literal as I've been doing,
6: I have to keep reminding myself to do this right? all the time. And I succeed in some cases and fail in others.
1: The other thing is that the originals were done in blue line that incredibly crude process. Mm-hmm. right? And now, of course, we've got this absolutely gorgeous color effect. I mean, the things we do with your color is staggering. My colorist understands explicitly and <laughs> implicitly something. you know, I don't want to make the same mistakes, but I want to achieve the same effects. And it, and Brusenac is going to be lettering. Broussignac is the best at what he does in you know, a raging pain in the ass at the same time. When he chooses to, so he can be very literal. And then when you want to be literal, he gets a little, uh, you know, over here. And looking at the pages I was working on today, they're very methodical and very very direct. But I know once color is applied and once we start introducing the super text, because it will be even in place where large areas of blank space it will be filled with text, because it's a very noisy book. So working today in this way is so much of what I was talking about earlier about planning my mission. I have to really anticipate how fucking weird it's going to be on Thursday when I'm doing this on
6: Monday. Yeah. It's all done in piecement. It's all put together
1: slowly. And I, I haven't painted in 20 years. I have no desire to ever go back to it again. But I really I really like the freedom I've discovered in, in realizing I'm never going to have to learn to ink a comic book. I don't know how to ink it. I have no idea what that means. I make drawings. The fact that Klaus has become a penciler <laughs> saddens me. And the work is... That stuff you guys did together, when I saw those pencils, I was floored. They were competitive with stuff that he was doing. You know, they, oh, they were just yeah, It was just amazing stuff. Um, yeah, I can't make that transition. I sit there and I methodically massage, it. You know, I'll take a
0: little bit of paper and you know,
2: clean it up because I'm sloppy. You know. Well, I share that with you. I'm totally a, a slob, but for me, also with <laughs> the business is the artifice of it because I don't look at it as penciling and inking. I think of it as drawing with ink. Right. It's make, a painting picture. Yeah, that's all it is. You know, yeah. to me, that's a little bit like the old, you know poor program of, of trying to put stuff on an assembly line. It's like, okay, you're going to be putting in the windshield. You're going to be doing the tires. You know, it's like, no, no, we're making a car here. So let's just put the whole thing together in mean, that way. I'm physically incapable of doing that. No, it's not there at all,
1: And it wasn't quite comfortable with that reality, that I was okay with it. Marker, in brush, pencil, just make a mess. Right.
2: Thank God for contemporary production. Well, that's one of the things, when I do the memorial pieces, I found that... Now you're doing those by hand. No, right? those are all by hand. I mean, occasionally I'll do a black and white, and maybe I'll scan it in, and maybe add a color or, right. or whatever. but, but, but you're but, still getting good. Right, yeah, they're all about that because I don't have one... There's a clock ticking. It's like I give myself two hours top to do a piece or something. In case they come back? <laughs> no. No. But the idea of actually saying I don't have to worry about any kind of preconceived idea because... If I do a piece like a Joni Mitchell's birthday or so, whatever, it's like this piece has to be in black or white for some reason, or this piece is going to be in color. And so when I dive into it, I have no preconceptions, no it's got to look a certain way. It's all about process. I'm not thinking about the result. The only thing I care about is whether it looks like the person or not, or even more or less feels like the person, as opposed to looks like the person. For me, the Roth piece me.
7: To me, that's what he
2: was to me. But thank you. Yeah.
7: I know that comics is your is your art, but I wonder if either or both of you have any points in your career or really had like a personal artwork
2: that you show in gallery. I've actually had gallery shows yeah. for paintings and stuff like that, but I also feel to me the idea of actually having comic work in galleries. There was actually a museum in Madrid that had some of my political comics brought to life stuff in the same museum, literally right around the corner from like Picasso and Botticelli. And I was like, to me, I think comics can do anything. So the idea of actually doing a landscape or or whatever, I like that idea. But to me, it's not the same as doing the medium. This is where my blood boils you
6: know, the
2: most. I'm a comics man. You know, my wife has never read a comic book in her life, and has no idea
1: what I do for a living. Uh, she has a vague notion of it, and I mean vague. She will often say, write a novel. Write a musical. Nah, 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 I'm good. I love comics. I love the idea of comics so much more than the reality of comics. But I love comics nonetheless. I sit down at my desk. I'm up at 5 o'clock in the morning every day. Because I'm dead. good. Enough.
6: I go out and do a bunch of shit. I have breakfast with the old people like that. I like having breakfast with people because it,
1: it makes me feel boyish. <laughs> and uh, I'm at my desk by nine o'clock. Once I settle down, I'm really digging what I'm doing. I really am. I like the idea of solving the problem that best me every step of the way. And making accidents work is the way to go. I'm 68 years old. And since I'm Jewish, I'm not really white, but I'm considered an old white man by an enormous part of the comic book community at large. And uh, fuck them.
6: <laughs> uh,
1: I'm not going anywhere. I plan to retire by the sound of my head in my desk and I'm not followed by a yelp. As
2: long as my skill set holds up, I'm going to be doing it. Do you actually still feel really, it's kind of almost disconcerting to hear you say that you feel that you've been marginalized to the extent oh, absolutely. that you know I guess I don't I experience so you that way. I am totally marginalized. Because I,
1: first of all, I I disappeared from comics in the 90s. And there's an entire generation that's come of age at that time. There are people who, I mean, look, in the space of a week, I was referred to by some nitwit on the left as a demon in a human skin suit. (laughs) And then the same week as a neutered butler of the social justice warrior. Ouch. Poetry on both
2: sides. <laughs> <laughs> no, Piss off both sides. If these fuckers would actually right. make a
1: fucking living and stop spending so much time hating me, one of the things I, progressive left, seems to have problems with, is the Nazi right. Me too. Yeah. But it would be interesting if, while they were slinging shit at each other, somebody might actually do a good book. Uh, but no, no. The what they're, they're doing, right. doing is this anodyne horseshit. Uh. You know? I'd like to see a really good crypto-fascist comic book. <laughs> I'd like to see someone come along and do for comic books what Norman Spinrad did for Science Fiction with the Iron Dream. The Lord of the Swastikov. The first classical performance I ever heard in my life in person I was dating the woman who became the mother of my child was a Brandon new was conducted by Herbert von Karajan. It was my favorite conductor. I found this effort through the show. My date was a beautiful, red-headed Dutch girl. No real context. the you know, I was like, oh my God, Hitler. You know, I like, guess. But it's very tough being loathed and despised by both sides of the aisle Because neither of them read my stuff. They just presume. They grant themselves the narcissistic power to identify through their projection what these things mean. The ambiguity is no context for these people. To a great extent, the first cover of The Divided States of hysteria, which is a picture of a woman wearing a niqab made an American flag, presumptions were made by what I meant. But I meant nothing. It was simply a provocative image. With no specific intent to provoke. Just an image that was provocative. Didn't say one thing or the other. But because these people grant themselves these second thoughts, they draw conclusions. Now, the people who should hate me on the right. Because I am, after all, a reasonably leftist sort of cat. But the marginally, where I am out here in the margins is because, unlike my contemporaries, I didn't identify and build a career by doing a mainstream superhero character to generate an audience who would stay with me and follow me. Also, I make my taste and interest abundantly clear and it doesn't endear me to a lot of people who read comic books. I don't care. One of the reasons I came to California was because I recognized, as I said, I was never gonna make a lot of money in comic books. And I was gonna get this fucking old and I know what social security does for you. I went and worked in television. I never worked on a show I'd watch. i watch. I've made enough of my living to own real estate and get a pension, which gives me enormous freedom. And that freedom pays for
6: my ability to do whatever I damn well please. I don't care about superhero comic books. So I don't do superhero comic books.
1: I do genre material because I like genre material. I like westerns. I like fucking stories. Uh, I like crime. And I like doing all that kind of stuff. And I like drawing it, and I like writing it. And the audience doesn't read the material. The audience simply imposes its own conclusions on the material. And I expect this from the Nazis. I'm disappointed by the left. They embarrass <coughs> me because I vote their way. I said to someone recently who demanded that I denounce the people at Comicsgate, having no idea what the commentary was at the time, because I don't really care about other people. <laughs> I system, I said. And I went investigated what, what they were so upset about. I think it was three guys who were also my Facebook. And I read it. I wrote back and I said, you should know that when Hitler came to power, he wasn't elected by a majority. And that it wasn't until the German people found that their
6: lives were improved by the Nazis that they became perfectly willing and complicit in the course. So those of you out there
1: who are asking to denounce are going to be denouncing your friends sooner or later if this autocracy continues. So get ready. Look over your shoulder, look your left, look your right. Some of the people who are your friends now are going to fuck you later. So I ended up unfriending the people they suggested I deferred, but also the schmuck who asked me to denounce them the first place. So fuck that. <laughs> live in an ideological world that objects to ideas, that is afraid of ideas, that rejects iconoclasm out of a sense of a victim culture. And fuck them. If you really want to be victimized, you can do it on your own. Leave me alone. Leave me out of this. So I get up in the morning. I do what I do. And I hope someone likes it. I can't depend on an audience that... Bill knows this. I think I can speak for both of us. We both have an enormous number of people in comedy business who have utter contempt for their audience and yet take their praise as just. You can't do that. I believe that's impossible. I remain completely neutral to my audience's intentions. If someone tells me how I say love my work,
2: I'm also reminded always that they also like shit that I hold in to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah, I bet this back. <laughs> yeah. 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 So, yeah, especially on the left, one of the things that I've seen a lot of—it reminds me a lot of the battle between vegans and vegetarians <laughs> <laughs> about purity and the carnivores. When the carnivores are just going completely off the rail, it's like, no, we're more pure than you are. It just drives me crazy. Just, I don't like Pointless, my point was, I like I mean, <laughs> the worst television show where I ever
1: watched was called Earth Final Conflict. It was like a bad television show and a novel about bad television. And the showrunner was a guy who never had any experience as a writer. It was like, he was rewriting everybody. He was, he was a disbarred lawyer. He was the first vegan I ever knew. And it's poisoned my relationship with the entire culture. I have to remind myself whenever I meet someone who's a vegan, they're not Paul. They are not Paul. They are people. You know, you wouldn't run them over again. You know, that kind of. But yeah, I think, I think it's a balance point. Yeah. We are becoming micro tribes. We are slowly but surely slivering ourselves smaller and smaller into, into tinier and tinier ideologies. I grew up, I'm a member of a popular confront family. My parents were classic Reds. The earliest known photograph of my Uncle Julie was getting punched in the face cop. We grew up that way. My credentials of the leftists are pretty solid. And I'm pretty comfortable with this. And unlike a lot of people thinking, think you grow more conservative as you get older, this is it not true for me. Um, I'm not that guy. But I find myself charged by people who, and whose identity is defined by a sense of hurt that just staggers me. Are any of you aware of like, the past couple of years? There was this, I think about five or six years ago, there was this whole spate. NPR was reporting this, but all these sex parties going on among teenagers, 13 year old kids, you know, with oral sex as currency. What happened? Why not? They're not fucking, and the insults can't get laid. What happened? When did that happen? And someone pointed out today,
6: how can a culture raised on South
1: Park be so offended by everything? I grew up with a desperate need to argue. I I grew up in a Talmudic family, and I learned to argue from the Jews outside the shul who argued about the Torah,
6: and the Yankees.
1: It was serious. I mean, this was some serious shit, you know? Every one of them smoked Chesterfields, you
6: know? And, and they taught me how to behave in public. And, you know, and I'm, I don't walk in the bar, you know? But I'm astonished at the delicacy of this culture, the Eloy
2: and Warlock nature of the future. The whole thing about going to college, you know, it's like, the whole concept of safe spaces, it does drive
1: me absolutely <laughs> up. Yeah, trigger warnings, exactly, all that. My assistant, as I said, is high-spectrum autistic. And I explained to him that extant extent of his autism, he's a fucking idiot. And that is the, the way it goes. I cannot accept the fact that, there's a quote from Eldridge Cleaver in that book of meditation that I too much agreement spoils the chat. <laughs> and I tend to agree. You know, I don't have friends that I agree with on everything. I'm like that old fucker. He's just a whiny Lutheran. I should have known. I should have known. But he's also known in that context as America's favorite juther. So, you
6: know, these are men that disagree
1: with me on almost everything I believe. And being disagreed with, keeps you young and green. It gives you the
6: impetus to move forward and tell you, no, fuck you, this is why. It's not about using sarcasm on cats. You know, it's actually
1: having a conversation. You know. I live in a small town and I like living in a small town because people have no idea what they do for a living. When they find out, it's like like Uh, (laughs) peanuts? Just like peanuts. That's what it's about. So
2: That's why you you and Schultz were never in the
1: That's right, you know. It's (laughs) and me, baby. (laughs) I think we have time for one more, and then then we're gonna slip off into night and get hurt. Okay. Done? You're done? you completed your mission? Okay. Have you had a good time? I certainly have. I've had a fabulous time. You guys. We thank Michael before we go anywhere.
5: Three quick things before everybody goes. First of all, the Art Center Library brought some books by these two guys. Anybody who wants to look through them, just don't steal them. You're stealing from a library, don't do that. <laughs> yeah. Second thing is two more events this semester. Next week, Parking Superheroes. <laughs> if you're interested in Silver Rage, Captain America with Jim Steranko. That's coming next Monday. But he's and not going to be here. No, no, no. no. He's never- Schumer is gonna be here to present in Jim's place. And two weeks from then, if you're interested in the EC comics of the 50s that were censored and destroyed by Wortham and Company, there's
4: a theatrical group that's going to be putting on a performance of band EC comics. So- <laughs>
5: 윌대가 <웃음> <웃음> <웃음>